0: This is Audible. Fifteen Secrets Successful People Know About Time Management Written by Kevin Cruz Narrated by Kevin Cruz Chapter One The Power of 1440 Can a single number change your life? A three-word question used to send chills of dread down my spine. Got a minute? Sure, I believed in an open-door policy. Sure, I was the boss. Sure. Some people would say I was overly detail-oriented, which made people check in with me too frequently. Who, me? I was the founder and president of a digital learning company that quickly took off. Revenue doubling every year, and all the related challenges. New hires, sales, product launches, fundraising, and on and on. The fires to put out kept multiplying, as did the knocks on my office door followed by, got a minute? There's nothing wrong with people asking me for advice or help but I quickly found entire days were being spent on other people's priorities and problems as the requested minute meetings inevitably turned into 30 minutes or more. My priorities, the company's strategic priorities, washed away by the never-ending torrent of urgent got-a-minutes. Finally, I printed a big 1440 on a piece of paper and taped it to the outside of my office door. No other words, no explanation, just 1440 in Ariel bold 300-point font. How I beat back time thieves. Every time I walked into my own office, I passed that giant 1440 sign as a reminder. Tick, tick, tick. I could not be careless with my minutes. But what also happened was that when people stopped by to ask, got a minute? I would say yes. They would immediately ask, so what's that 1440 sign all about? I would explain that it was a simple reminder to me of the value of time and how I needed to invest each minute of my day Very wisely. I always made it about me, but the length of these got-a-minute meetings suddenly got shorter. One person heard my explanation and replied, You know what? I don't need to talk anymore. I just realized it can wait until the team huddle on Monday. I can only assume that my 1440 sign initially freaked people out. Kevin must be in a bad mood. He doesn't want us talking to him anymore. Kevin's a hypocrite. He says he has an open-door policy, then he insults us with that sign. But the sign stayed up, and the novelty wore off. Soon I heard other people in the office talking about only 1440 minutes as they prioritize tasks or turn down invitations to irrelevant meetings. 1,440 minutes in a day. If you're like most people who want to improve their time management, you probably want a list of tips, tools, and systems that will increase your productivity and add hours to your week. Yet, the single most important thing when it comes to time and productivity isn't a tactic or a trick, it's a shift in mindset. Self-made millionaires, professional athletes, straight-A students, other highly successful people think about time differently. They experience time differently. In their own words, Kevin Harrington. Before I decide to take on a new project, I analyze it. How much of my time will this take, and what is my financial upside potential? I create a dollar-per-minute analysis, hopefully a million-dollar-per-week upside. Kevin Harrington is the inventor of the infomercial, a best-selling author, an original investor on Shark Tank, and founder and chairman of As Seen on TV, Inc. Take a minute to think about the most valuable things in life. Really take a minute to look up from this book, maybe even close your eyes, come up with a list of all the things in the world that you value most. Oh wait, did you really do this little exercise? Don't just read this book and let it go in and out. You need to do the activities to anchor the lessons. Changing behaviors is hard, and passively reading won't get it done, so you got to do it. Okay, if you're like most people, your list of the most valuable things includes your spouse, children, friends, health, money, and of course time. Highly successful people have a similar list, but they rank time as the most important item of all. Shouldn't health be number one? You can be healthy and then get sick and then regain your health again. How about money? You can lose all your money and you can make it all back. Friends? Friends are important, and yet, how many friends did you have back in college that you no longer keep in touch with? Or even people who were guests at your wedding, and that was the last day you ever saw them. Yes, friends are prized, yet we lose them and make new friends all the time. Yes, your spouse means the world to you, and 50% of married people get a divorce. And many divorced people get a new husband or wife that's suddenly the love of their life. But time! You can never lose time and get it back again. You can't spend time and go earn more of it. You can't buy it, rent it, or borrow it. Time is the most important asset. Time is unique because it's the one true equalizer. Some people are born rich, others born poor. Some have Ivy League degrees, while others are high school dropouts. Some are genetically gifted athletes, others physically challenged. But we all have the same minutes in a day. Time is the lowest common denominator. Hold your hand to your heart. Again, I really need you to do it. Hold your hand to your chest and feel your heart. Beat, beat, beat. Become conscious of your breathing. In, out, in, out. You will never get those beats back. You will never get those breaths back. In fact, I just took three beats away from your life. I just took two breaths from you. But it was worth it if I helped you to truly feel time slipping away. You might be thinking, yeah, yeah, the importance of time, I know, that's why I'm reading this, I get it. But are you living it? Think about how much attention you give to your money. Working hard to make money, tracking your money in your bank account, researching the best ways to invest your money, reading about ways to make more money, and worrying that somebody might steal your money. You'd never leave your wallet sitting out in the open. You'd never give your ATM card and password to a bunch of strangers and yet we typically think little about our time. We routinely let people steal our time, even though it's our most valuable possession. The magic number that can change your life is 1,440. I encourage you to try it yourself. Just draw a big 1440 on a piece of paper and tape it on your office door, under your TV, next to your computer monitor, wherever it will best serve as a constant reminder of the very limited and oh-so-precious time you have each day. Why minutes and not seconds? There are 86,400 seconds in a day, and if that number is more powerful to you, by all means, put up an 86,400 sign to remind you of time. Personally, I find focusing on minutes to be more powerful. Seconds can slip away fairly easily, but minutes, think of all the ways you can spend just one minute. I asked the members of my Facebook page, facebook.com slash author how they could use a single minute. Their responses included, do 30 sit-ups, tell someone how much you love them, do a yoga breath of fire, write a thank you note, introduce yourself to a stranger, read a poem, have a great idea, water a plant, pet your cat, have your heart broken or break a heart, sing a song, write in a journal, eat an apple, drink a glass of water. Send a text to someone you're thinking about. Stand in the sun. Write three things you're grateful for. Make a decision to give up smoking. Give feedback. Give a donation. Apologize. Boil water for tea. Send a positive tweet. Daydream. Smile. Take a photo that will turn into a memory. Plank. Breathe. In with abundance. Out with gratitude. Journal. Hug your mom. Have one really, really good kiss. Recall a happy moment. Meditate. Pray. Highly successful people feel the passage of time. They know the potential that every minute holds. In their own words, Andrew Mason. I'll just say that actually being disciplined about adopting these habits is, in my experience, a huge differentiator of successful people. If I was building a character in a business video game and I had 10 character points to distribute, I'd put three of them into intelligence and seven of them into self-discipline. Andrew Mason is the co-founder of Detour and co-founder and former CEO of Groupon. When you wake up and subconsciously start the countdown, 1440, 1439, 1438, adopting the habits of highly successful people becomes very, very easy. Secret number one, time is your most valuable and scarcest resource. How would your life change if each and every day you truly felt your 1,440 minutes. Free bonus! To download a ready-to-print 1440 poster and other free bonuses, visit www.masteryourminutes.com. Chapter 2. The Power of Proper Priorities. How would you like to be totally clear on your one thing? Whose dreams are you chasing, anyway? If you aren't busy working on your own goals, You'll be working to achieve somebody else's goals. What's your one thing? In the hilarious 1991 movie City Slickers, the old cowboy Curly, played by Jack Palance, gives a secret to Mitch, played by Billy Crystal. Holding up his index finger, Curly explains that you need to figure out your one thing and stick to it. But the one thing concept goes back a lot further than a Billy Crystal comedy. Consider this advice from the ages. Publius Cirrus To do two things at once is to do neither. Russian proverb. If you chase two rabbits, you will catch neither one. Goethe. Things which matter most must never be at the mercy of things which matter least. Ogmandino. It is those who concentrate on but one thing at a time who advance in this world. General George Patton. Drive for the one thing on which you have decided. Peter Drucker. Efficiency is doing the thing right. Effectiveness is doing the right thing. Vince Lombardi. Success demands singleness of purpose. Identifying your most important task. Teresa McCann, a professor at the University of Missouri, St. Louis, conducted groundbreaking research into time management, productivity, and stress, discovering that the two most important keys are priorities and mechanics. In other words, the mechanics of implementing time management techniques. Put simply the most important things are to know what to focus on and how you're going to get it done. I call this always knowing your most important task, or MIT. Research says, In addition to increased productivity, having a daily MIT correlates to higher levels of happiness and energy. Entire books have been written on goal setting. I may write one myself someday. But it all comes down to understanding what is most important to you And what activity right now will provide the greatest leverage to getting there? In their own words, Brianna Scurry. About six months before an Olympics, I'd relate all decisions I made to the ultimate vision of winning gold. The simple question I would ask several times a day was, will this activity help me perform better and therefore help us win gold? Brianna Scurry won two gold medals as the starting goalkeeper for the United States women's soccer team, in 1996 and 2004. Chris Brogan, I work more on time alignment. Is this part of my mission? Does this serve others or strengthen my ability to serve others? Those two questions keep me tight to my map. That's how I best manage my time and priorities. Chris Brogan is a best-selling author and CEO of Owner Media Group. Randy Gage, I always start with the most important thing on my priority list. If you didn't spend your week working on the most important thing, It was a week wasted. Randy Gage is the author of nine books, including the New York Times bestseller, Risky is the New Safe. Most people set goals for health, wealth, relationships. Others add things like spirituality, charity, and recreation. Regardless of your focus areas, conventional wisdom dictates that your goal be specific and measurable. Instead of writing a goal to save money, it should be something like save $5,000 by the end of the year. Instead of just lose weight, you would specify, lose 10 pounds in 10 weeks. After identifying your most important goal, you need to identify which activities will lead to goal achievement and which activity is most important right now. Don't get sidetracked by the goal setting if you don't already have identified goals. In fact, other experts like CEO coach Peter Bregman suggest that there's a downside to goals. Instead, Bregman suggests picking focus areas. For example, the time I'm writing this book, I know that I really want to increase my passive income this year. But I don't have a specific dollar amount in mind, and because I have plenty of money, I'm not feeling any pressure to define it. But in order to grow passive income, I also know that I need to create all kinds of things like books, assessments, and online training. Right now when I ask myself, what is the single most important task, my MIT, to get closer to my goal right now, I know it's working on this book. Once the book is done, I'll create spin-off content. And once I have more stuff to sell, my one thing will likely be working on marketing materials or webinars to spread the word. But for now, I know that my MIT is writing this book. Your own MIT may look very different based on your job and personal goals. A rookie salesperson's MIT might be cold calling in order to hit a sales target. A software engineer's MIT might be to debug a particular module in order to hit a launch deadline. A senior software executive's MIT might be recruiting a new programmer in order to develop a new app. A startup CEO's MIT might be to create a slide deck in order to land venture capital. A student's MIT might be to find a tutor in order to do well on an upcoming exam. A stay-at-home parent's MIT might be to reserve a campground site at the state park to line up the family's favorite summer vacation. Mark Pincus on his MIT. Identifying your MIT makes your scheduling decisions much easier. Having identified what is most important to you, you'll need a very good reason not to be spending time on it. The social gaming company Zynga is probably best known for its game Farmville, which at its peak had over 265 million active users. Zynga's CEO, Mark Pincus, clearly has his MIT well-defined and he believes in spending at least half of his time on it. In his own words, if you want to build great products, devote more than 50% of your work hours to product. Don't accept speaking opportunities if you can't justify them as benefiting your users or your company. Mark Pincus is the co-founder and CEO of Zynga. Two awesome hours in the morning. After identifying your MIT, you need to turn it into a calendar item and book it as early in your day as possible. Dan Ariely, a Duke University professor of psychology and behavioral economics, suggests that most people are most productive and have the highest cognitive functioning in the first two hours after they're fully awake. In a Reddit Ask Me Anything, Ariely wrote, one of the saddest mistakes in time management is the propensity of people to spend the two most productive hours of their day on things that don't require high cognitive capacity, like social media. If we could salvage those precious hours, most of us would be much more successful in accomplishing what we truly want. Why do we do this? Why do we spend our best hours on our least important tasks? Many of us jump into our day trying to take care of all the quick and easy things. Responding to all those overnight emails, sorting our stack of mail, signing off on purchase orders, it all feels so productive. Look, it's only 11 in the morning, I must have done at least 50 things. In their own words, Tom Ziegler, invest the first part of your day working on your number one priority that will help you build your business. Do this without interruptions, no email or text, and before the rest of the world is awake. Tom Ziegler is the CEO of Ziegler, Inc. Jonathan Milligan, do creative work first, reactive work second. Jonathan Milligan is the author of The 15 Success Traits of Pro Bloggers. Others choose to do the most unpleasant tasks early in the morning in what's known as the the eat-the-frog-first strategy. It's a procrastination-fighting technique that says if you have something unpleasant to do, just get it out of the way first thing. This is good advice if it defeats procrastination, but it can also be counterproductive if you routinely use it to break up your peak hours. In their own words, Andrew McCauley, I prepare a must-do list the night before. When I get to my desk, I do those items first before I turn on my email. Andrew McCauley is the co-founder of Autopilot Your Business. Not only are most people at their cognitive best earlier in the day, but it's less likely that unexpected items will jump onto the calendar or require urgent attention. In their own words, Nathan Blacharczyk, I try to reserve the morning for doing real work. I find I can focus more in the morning, whereas it's harder to get focused after having been bombarded by meetings, so I try to save meetings for later in the day. Nate Lecharzik is the co-founder of Airbnb. Taking Dr. Ariely's advice to heart, drink that first cup of coffee while driving into work, but then shut your door, silence your phone, close email and social media, and work on your MIT. In their own words, Stefan Wassner. I schedule a series of 90-minute jam sessions throughout my day and week, where I focus exclusively on one vital priority and nothing else. Stefan Wassner is the host of the Onward Nation podcast and CEO of Predictive ROI. Christina Davis, I have found that I'm most productive from 6 a.m. to noon. I'm up, fresh, creative, and that is the time I make crazy things happen. I do more in those hours than most people probably do all week. Christina Davies is the author of PR for Anyone and CEO and founder of PR for Anyone. How does this apply if you're an entrepreneur? Would it be helpful to identify the one thing that is most important to achieving your quarterly goals? Executive, would it be helpful to be crystal clear on the number one objective you'll be evaluated against when it comes time for your annual performance review? Freelancer, would it be helpful to identify the one thing that will lead to more clients? Student, would it help to pick the one class that is most important for you to raise your grades? Stay-at-home parent, would it be helpful to identify the one thing that is currently most important for your child's health and development? For example, organizing a playgroup, choosing a summer camp, finding a music tutor. Secret number two, identify your most important task, your MIT, and work on it each day before doing anything else. So what's your one thing? What's your MIT? Free bonus? To download the Priorities and MIT worksheet and other free bonuses, visit www.masteryourminutes.com. Chapter 3. Stop making to-do lists and do this instead. Do you really think millionaires and billionaires walk around with to-do lists? Do you think Bill Gates, Donald Trump, and Warren Buffett Write out a long to-do list and prioritize items as A1, A2, B1, B2, C1, and on and on? Do you really think Steve Jobs kept a to-do list and asked himself several times a day, what's my next action? The problem with to-do lists. To-do lists should be called nagging wish lists, a series of tasks you hope to accomplish without a specific plan as to when you'll get them all done. How many items on your current to-do list have been on there for several days? For weeks. Months? first problem with recording tasks on a to-do list is that it doesn't distinguish between items that take only a few minutes and items that require an hour or more. So when you randomly look at your list and ask, hmm, what should I tackle next? You're very likely going to pick the quick tasks, the easy items, not necessarily the thing that is most important. Research says 41% of to-do list items are never completed. Source. The Busy Person's Guide to the Done List from I Done This app. Second, and similar to the first problem, to-do lists make it really easy to work on the urgent instead of the important. That's why I still have Create Annual Family Photo Album for 2013 still on my to-do list from two years ago. Do you know how many men have had colonoscopy on their to-do list year after year? Research says 50% of to-do list items are completed within a day, many within the first hour of being written down. Third, to-do lists cause unnecessary stress. Indeed, when we carry around a long list of undone items, it's one way to remember them, but it's also a constant reminder, a constant nagging, that there are many things we still need to deal with. No wonder we feel so overwhelmed. No wonder at night we collapse exhausted, but we fight insomnia as our brain processes all that still has to get done. No wonder our bodies are breaking down from the stress. Research says. The Zygernick effect is a psychological term based on studies that show unfinished goals cause intrusive, uncontrolled thoughts. Live life from your calendar. Highly successful people don't have a to-do list, but they do have a very well-kept calendar. One of the most consistent messages I got from all the interviews and research I did for this book was that no matter what it is, if you truly want to get it done, schedule time for it. In their own words, Jordan Harbinger. Use a calendar and schedule your entire day into 15-minute blocks. It sounds like a pain, but this will set you up in the 95th percentile as far as organization goes. If it's not on the calendar, it doesn't get done. If it's on the calendar, it gets done no matter what. Use this not just for appointments, but workouts, calls, email blocks, etc. Jordan Harbinger is the co-founder of the Art of Charm and host of the Art of Charm podcast, a school that teaches networking and relationship development skills. This is why hyper-busy politicians, executives, celebrities have full-time schedulers. This is why, as pretentious as it sounds, successful people are prone to saying things like, have your people call my people to set something up. In their own words, from Chris Ducker, I simply put everything on my calendar, on my schedule, that's it. Everything I do on a day-to-day basis gets put on my schedule. 30 minutes of social media, on the schedule. 45 minutes of email management, on the schedule. Catching up with my virtual team, on the schedule. Quiet time to contemplate and plan, on the schedule. Bottom line, if it doesn't get scheduled, it doesn't get done. Chris Ducker is a serial entrepreneur, keynote speaker, and best-selling author, as well as a popular business blogger and podcaster. Surprisingly, the simple act of scheduling tasks on your calendar instead of writing them on a to-do list, will free your mind, reduce stress, and increase cognitive performance. Florida State University researchers showed that the Zygernick effect, the stressful conscious and unconscious thoughts caused by unfinished tasks, could be overcome simply by making a plan to accomplish a task. You didn't actually have to complete the task itself. Research says, A plan increases one's odds of attaining a goal and simultaneously reduces cognitive activities. Source. Consider it done. Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, 2011. There are several key concepts to managing your life using your calendar instead of a to-do list. First, schedule a chunk of time for everything that's important to you. This is called time blocking or time boxing. If you truly value being healthy, and have decided that a 30-minute daily workout is your enabling goal, then don't put it on your to-do list. Put it on your calendar. Schedule it as a recurring appointment. If you value customer intimacy as a business strategy and have an enabling goal of talking to at least two customers a day, then schedule a daily appointment for customer calls. In their own words, Shannon Miller. During training... I balance family time, chores, schoolwork, Olympic training, appearances, and other obligations by outlining a very specific schedule. I was forced to prioritize. To this day, I keep a schedule that is almost minute by minute. Focus on those things that bring you further to your goal each and every day. Every moment counts. Shannon Miller is a member of the 1992 and 1996 U.S. Olympic gymnastics team who won a combined seven Olympic medals. Second, important items should be scheduled as early in the day as possible. No matter how much we try to control our time and calendars, we all have things that come up that might need our attention. It could be a meeting request from our boss, an angry client call, or the school nurse calling to say we need to pick up Johnny from school. Naturally, as more time ticks away in each day, the more likely it is that something unexpected will happen. I personally struggle with this immensely. If I have my daily workout scheduled for the late afternoon or night, The odds are high that I'll feel some other priority is in need of extra attention by the time I actually get to my exercise time block. I basically know that if I don't hit the treadmill in the morning, the odds of hitting it at all go way down. Third, don't cancel goals. Reschedule them if necessary. For example, if you normally work out every day from 12 to 1 during your lunch hour, but you have to be on an airplane on Monday traveling for work at noon, you would reschedule the exercise appointment for earlier or later in the day. In their own words, get one of those big blue calendars. Planning your life on your phone is fine, but it doesn't give you the same perspective. Will Dean is an Olympic rower for Canada and competed in the London 2012 Olympics. He's currently training for Rio 2016. Fourth, treat your time block calendar entries as if they were appointments with your doctor. They're that important. Most of us cave in on our self-scheduled appointments too easily. If we time block 4 to 5 p.m. to work on an important report at the office, and then a colleague asks for 15 minutes of time because something's come up, I need to run by you, we reflexively say, sure, thinking we'll finish that report in only 45 minutes, or we'll stay 15 minutes later or adjust in some other way. But imagine if instead of working on a report, you had an appointment with your doctor or dentist. Would you still agree to give away that time and show up for your doctor 15 minutes late? Of course not. In their own words, Caitlin Hale, what I found to be the most effective way to manage my time was to buy an agenda with a big calendar. I handwrite what topics I need to cover and how long I need to be studying that topic each night. Caitlin Hale was a straight-A student in college and currently attends the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey. Dave Kirpin. If it's not in my calendar, it won't get done. But if it's in my calendar, it will get done. I schedule out every 15 minutes of every day to conduct meetings, review materials, write, and do any activities I need to get done. And while I take meetings with just about anyone who wants to meet with me, I reserve just one hour a week for these office hours. People can schedule time at http://scheduledave.com. Dave Kirpin is the New York Times bestselling author of three books, the co-founder and chairman of Likeable Media, and the founder and CEO of Likeable Local. The best habit is to automatically respond to unanticipated requests that conflict with your calendar by saying something like, I have an important appointment on my calendar from 4 to 5. Is there any chance we can talk after 5 or can I wait until the morning? You'll be surprised at how frequently the unanticipated item can then be scheduled in an open block. Sure, there's going to be times when an important person, a boss, a spouse, for example, needs our attention. And it really is more important than our time block. But we can always ask to fit it in elsewhere as our first reaction. Jeff Weiner, Time Blocks, Buffer Time. The CEO of LinkedIn, Jeff Weiner, wrote a blog post describing how he time blocks do-nothing time on his calendar. He wrote, If you were to see my calendar, you'd probably notice a host of time slots grayed out, but with no indication of what's going on. There's no problem with my Outlook or printer. The gray sections reflect buffers, or time periods I've purposely kept clear of meetings. In aggregate, I schedule between 90 minutes and two hours of these buffers every day, broken down into 30- to 90-minute blocks. It's a system I developed over the last several years in response to a schedule that was becoming so jammed with back-to-back meetings that I had little time left to process what was going on around me or to just think. At first, these buffers felt like indulgences. I could have been using the time to catch up on meetings I had pushed out or said no to, but over time I realized not only were these breaks important, they were absolutely necessary in order for me to do my job. Design your ideal week with time blocks. Another way your calendar can become a powerful life-guiding tool is by using it to design your ideal week. Think about what your ideal work week would look like. If you're a freelancer, consultant, or coach, it might include focus time to work on client projects, but also time to learn new skills or to be inspired by others' work, or to work on your own marketing initiatives. If you're a mid-level executive, your ideal week might include one-on-one coaching time with some of your team members, time for team meetings, as well as time to sit alone to think strategically about the year ahead. Regardless of your professional role, you may also find that your ideal week, and even ideal day, has some recurring personal things. Exercise, time with your family, time to relax, or to pursue hobbies. Mapping all of these items onto your calendar and making them recurring appointments is the way to design your life. It's a powerful way to stay consistent on those activities that give you the most return and the most joy. My own calendar reflects my values in many ways. I value health, so I time block 60 minutes each morning for exercise. I value coaching my team members, so I time block one-on-one meetings with each direct report on Mondays as a way to kick off the week. I value team alignment and breaking down silos, so I time block a weekly full team meeting. I value writing, so I have two to three blocks of time scheduled each week to write uninterrupted. I value my children's education, so I time block evenings after dinner to help them with their homework. I value recharging and new experiences, so I block off long weekends or entire weeks, sometimes a year in advance for vacations, even if I don't know where I'm going yet. Remember that the key point is not to use a to-do list as your primary time management tool. Items on a to-do list can sit there forever, constantly getting bumped by things that seem urgent in the moment. And having this list of things that still need to get done is the root cause of our underlying stress. When you master the practice of time blocking using your calendar instead of your to-do list, you can literally see your life's priorities by looking at your weekly calendar. How does this apply if you're an entrepreneur? Would it be helpful to block time each week to talk directly to customers, review metrics against goals, or to coach your direct reports? Executive. Would it be helpful to block time for your top objectives? Freelancer. Would it be helpful to set up time blocks each week to read industry blogs or to learn how to use new tools? Student. Would it help to time block study group time and your teacher's office hours? Stay-at-home parent. Would be helpful to time-block trips to the gym, weekly errands, and bill pain? Secret number three, work from your calendar, not a to-do list. How much less stress would you feel if you could rip up your to-do list and work from your calendar? Free bonus to download the Millionaire Day Planner Worksheet and other free bonuses, visit www.masteryourminutes.com. Chapter four, The Procrastination Cure. Imagine if you could use a mental exercise to finally defeat procrastination. How different might your life be? Procrastination isn't about laziness. It's ironic, but I'm procrastinating right now as I write this chapter. I'm supposed to be doing research and customization for a speaking engagement I landed with a giant energy company. Instead, I'm writing this chapter. It's not like the motivation isn't there. They're paying me $54,425 to deliver three talks in three days so I should be jumping up and down for joy and eager to dive in. But alas, writing a book on time and productivity is easier and more fun for me than spending a half day poking around Google Scholar, reading dry academic papers, and creating compelling new slides. Besides, I can get to it tomorrow. Procrastination is the habit of putting off important, less pleasurable tasks by doing easier, more pleasurable tasks. You know, things like email, Twitter, Facebook, food, and TV, all excellent ways to procrastinate. In an interview with the American Psychological Association, Joseph Ferrari, Ph.D., shared some of his research findings. We all put tasks off, but my research has found that 20% of U.S. men and women are chronic procrastinators. They delay at home, work, school, and in relationships. These 20% make procrastination their way of life. Let's place the 20% in perspective. That's higher than the number of people diagnosed with clinical depression or phobias, two tendencies many people know about. To beat procrastination once and for all, you have to understand it. You don't procrastinate because you're lazy. You procrastinate because, one, you lack enough motivation and or, you underestimate the power of present emotions versus future emotions when you set your goals or make your task list. We tend to procrastinate a wide variety of things, You might procrastinate doing that school report, or making those cold calls, or firing someone who clearly has to go, or cleaning out the garage. For me, my weak spot is exercise. In every other area of life, once I've decided on the goal, I'm able to execute it without procrastination. But working out? That's a whole other story. So let me use exercise and fitness as our example in the following procrastination busters. Research says... People who rarely procrastinate report higher levels of productivity, happiness, and energy. Source, The Cruise Group, 2015. Procrastination buster number one, time travel. This is a big one. The underlying problem we all have is that we are what psychologists call time inconsistent. This means we think we'll eat salads during the week, so we stock up on lettuce at the grocery store, but inevitably we end up with slimy, rotting lettuce two weeks later at the bottom of our refrigerator. Being timing consistent also means we add documentaries and indie films to our Netflix queue, because certainly we'll watch them in the future, and yet they never move to number one, because we keep choosing Will Ferrell movies instead. It's why I keep buying new workout equipment and a fancy scale, and healthy food cookbooks, and yet I'm still not seeing my six-pack abs. Despite what we think we're going to want in the future, We have present bias. When the present actually gets here, and yes, the present is always here, we choose candy, sitcoms, Facebook, and cat videos. They're easier and more fun. And hey, we can always get to that other thing in the afternoon or on Monday or do that resolution thing again in January, right? We always underestimate how hard it is to be our best self in the present moment. To overcome this time inconsistency, we must do battle with our future self, the one who... In the present moment, will sabotage us. Our future self is the enemy of our best self. I like to think of this battle as time traveling to defeat my future self. Using the health example, I start by thinking, how will I sabotage my health goals in the future? How can I overcome that now? I know that my future self is going to sabotage me by eating junk food in the kitchen during my breaks. To beat them, my present self is going to throw out all the junk food and not keep any in the house. I'm also going to buy baby carrots and hummus to reach for as a replacement. My future self is going to sabotage my workout by saying it's too busy of a day to fit it in. My present self will defeat him by time-blocking exercise first thing in the morning, and I'll immediately put workout clothes on as soon as I get out of bed, and I'll refuse to look at email until after my workout. My future self is going to sabotage my workouts by thinking, I'm actually pretty healthy. I don't look that bad compared to most people who go to the mall. My blood pressure and cholesterol are fine. My present self is going to tell my girlfriend to pinch my love handle flab on any day I don't hit the treadmill. That's going to be embarrassing and gross. One friend of mine goes to extreme measures to battle her five-minute future self. In pursuit of her health goals whenever she eats out at a restaurant and they bring her a side of french fries, she immediately opens the salt shaker and dumps the entire thing on top of the fries. She's learned not to trust regular old willpower to not eat the fries. Her five minutes in the future self is going to say, I'll just have one, and we all know how that goes. So how are you going to do battle with your future self? Procrastination buster number two, pain and pleasure. Ultimately, if you aren't jumping out of bed in the morning excited to tackle our project, it's because our dreams aren't big enough. They aren't motivating enough, and motivation comes down to pain and pleasure. For the tough tasks, you always tend to procrastinate, think about, and even visualize The why behind them. What pleasure will I get by doing this thing? What pain will I feel if I don't do it? One of my enabling goals is to work out every day. Yoga stretches, resistance training, and the treadmill. I need to really pile on the pain and pleasure in my mind to actually do my workouts. Why do I want to work out? Because I want to look good. I want definition in my abs. Come on, what guy doesn't? I want high energy, and I believe cardiovascular exercise keeps the brain healthy. But what's the pain I'll feel if I don't work out? I visualize looking flabby with a beer belly. Sometimes I don't need to visualize it. I think about that weird pain above my knee that I get when I don't do the pigeon pose and yoga every day. I think about feeling like a loser, a couch potato, and having no energy. I even think about the fact that not working out is dis- disrespectful to my girlfriend. Does this mental routine sound extreme? I definitely go through this pain and pleasure thought cycle if I'm not feeling motivated. But it's actually helpful to just run through it routinely to burn it into my mindset. Procrastination buster number three, accountability partner. My childhood friend Kurt grew up and became a sports psychologist. He tells me that the number one predictor of whether someone will stick to an exercise routine or not is whether they're doing it with someone else. This can be a neighbor who meets you every morning at 6 a.m. for a jog. It can be a professional trainer whom you pay 50 bucks an hour to come to your house to kick your butt. It could be your boss who likes to play basketball every day at lunch. It could be a Weight Watchers club where you weigh in every week. And of course, it can be a study buddy at school or just a good friend who's going to check in with you and keep you accountable. The reason why this is so powerful is that when we procrastinate, we're merely breaking a promise to ourselves. But we feel far worse when we break a promise to someone else. Procrastination buster number four. Reward and Punishment. Some people I know respond very well to bribes, even though they're the one in control of the bribe. One friend told herself she could buy a new pair of expensive shoes, but only after she paid off her credit cards. Another friend bought an excellent bottle of wine, but he wouldn't drink it until he got down to a certain percentage of body fat. But In addition to the carrot, don't forget about the stick approach. Human psychology is such that we actually fear loss more than we want gain. So instead of rewarding yourself for goal achievement You can also punish yourself for goal failure. One company, Stick, S-T-I-C-K-K, dot com, has made a website that lets you set up a commitment contract. You pick the goal, the penalty, and a charity of your choice will receive your money if you don't hit the goal. As of this writing, over $14 million has been put up as stakes against the goal. My friend John recently set up a team weight loss goal with his colleagues in the office. Liberal in their political views, they each chipped in $100 and they have to donate it to the National Rifle Association if they don't shed the agreed-upon pounds. Of course, you don't need fancy software to execute on this strategy. You can always just set up a commitment contract with friends. Give them 100 bucks or whatever amount will hurt you and share your goal. If you don't follow through, they keep the money or give it to their favorite charity. Procrastination buster number five, act as if. B. That's it. B. Admittedly, this one's a little deep. It has to do with our identity. We all work really hard to stay consistent with who we think we are. Much of the problem behind task avoidance is that we aren't yet the person we're trying to become. We can visualize our ideal future state, but sometimes the present state, sitting here on the couch watching TV, feels a lot better. One unusual but very effective strategy is to self-talk yourself, out loud or in your head, as if you were already your ideal self. I am a healthy eater. I am a jogger. I am the number one sales rep in my company. I am a neat person. I am a best-selling author. I am an entrepreneur. What this self-talk is doing is anchoring your values. If you're already a jogger, it will feel bad and unnatural not to go out jogging today. If you're a writer, of course you're going to sit and write at the computer today. It's what writers do. If you're a healthy person, of course you'll go get a salad at the airport instead of that slice of pizza. Just be who you want to become. It will then feel badly. It will be incongruent not to do the task you might be tempted to procrastinate. Procrastination buster number six, settle for good enough. Sometimes we find it easy to start things, but we procrastinate finishing them. One trick to use is to just plan on settling for less than perfect. Procrastinating that three-mile jog? We'll just suit up and go outside and agree to run around the block once. That'll be good enough. And maybe it will be. Or maybe once you're done with that block, you'll just keep on going. Procrastinating finishing that book you've been working on? Just agree to push through it sloppily to complete draft one. You can always come back later to revise it. Procrastinating finishing that new product? Just launch it to the marketplace, even if it isn't perfect, and get it closer to perfection each quarter with a new release. Once you start something, once you agree that imperfect is okay, you'll feel a stronger motivation to finish it up. How does this apply if you're an entrepreneur? Would overcoming procrastination help you to work on the things that you feel are outside of your comfort zone? Executive, would overcoming procrastination make you more effective at having those difficult, constructive feedback conversations with your direct reports? Freelancer. Would overcoming procrastination help you to achieve more billable hours each day? Student. Would overcoming procrastination help you to complete class projects sooner? Stay at home parent. Would overcoming procrastination help you to finally organize the rooms in your house, thus making your mind more peaceful? Secret number four. Procrastination can be overcome when you figure out how to beat your future self who cannot be trusted to do the right thing. You know what needs to get done this week. How will you ensure that you don't put it off? Free bonus to download your Procrastination Cure infographic and other free bonuses, visit www.masteryourminutes.com. Chapter 5, How to Leave the Office at 5 Without Guilt. How can the world's most important people always seem so calm, stress-free, and fully present in the moment? Republican political strategist Carl Rove wrote a fascinating op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. He wrote, It all started on New Year's Eve in 2005. President Bush asked what my New Year's resolutions were. I told him that as a regular reader who'd gotten out of the habit, my goal was to read a book a week in 2006 Three days later, we were in the Oval Office when he fixed me in his sights and said, I'm on my second, where are you? Mr. Bush had turned my resolution into a contest. And the outcome of the bet? At year's end, I defeated the president, 110 books to 95. My trophy looked suspiciously like those given out at a junior bowling finals. The president lamely insisted he had lost because he had been busy as leader of the free world. The leader of the free world has time to read 95 books in one year, I thought. Sheryl Sandberg makes it home for dinner. Look at the habits of these highly successful business leaders. Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg leaves work at 5.30 p.m. every day so she can have dinner with her kids at 6 p.m. Former Intel president Andy Grove would arrive at 8 a.m. and leave work at 6 p.m. consistently. Virgin Group founder Richard Branson has over 400 companies in his conglomerate. Yet he always seems to be hanging out on his private island or breaking some crazy world record as an adventurer. Don't you find this shocking? How can they do that? When I first read about President Bush, I was blown away. You just know the President of the United States of America has a million things to do, right? At the end of the day, there's still more foreign leaders to call and influence, more CIA briefings to read, more campaign contributors to suck up to, more wounded veterans to visit, more voters to rally, more, more, more. And time until the end of his term was ticking away. He had a limited number of days to create his legacy. And yet President Bush found time to read 95 books in a year. Doug Conant, who's the CEO of Campbell Soup for a decade, used to send out 20 handwritten thank you notes a day. Can you imagine all the responsibilities of being the CEO of a Fortune 500 company? There's always more emails to read, more calls to return, more reports to scan, more meetings to attend more thinking about the future, and yet, Doug would calmly end his day by writing 20 notes. Back when I was young and dumb, I was running a company that was part of a larger conglomerate. My company was doubling in size every year, and there were never enough hours in the day. I can remember literally jogging through the hallways trying to get back to my office as quickly as possible. Yet my business partner and boss, Neil, who oversaw my company and 11 other divisions, always moved at such a leisurely pace. He always had time to tell a funny joke or a story, and he spent lots of time at the local golf club. Who has time to play golf, I used to wonder? The secret to guilt-free balance. Andy Grove revealed this ultimate secret in his book, High Output Management. My day ends when I'm tired and ready to go home, not when I'm done. I am never done. Like a housewife's, a manager's work is never done. There's always more to be done, More that should be done, always more than can be done. And that is the secret. There will always be more to do and always more than can be done. This is another one of those simple concepts that, once it truly sinks in, can dramatically change your life. I could remember the very moment I read Grove's book. It hit me like a ton of bricks. For too long, I let my to-do list master me. Sorry, can't make it home for dinner because I still have that report to do. I never exercised, I skipped most meals, and then I would gorge on fast food. My life was one-dimensional, and even in that dimension, business, my around-the-clock pace kept me down in the weeds instead of above the trees. Super-successful people don't just burn hour after hour trying to cross more items off their task list. Instead, they think through their priorities, schedule time for each, and then enough is enough. George Bush probably valued reading two books a week because it was a way to relieve stress, get smarter, or was just plain fun. He knew that learning and recharging are valuable tasks, and he wasn't going to let them get blocked out by urgent items. Sheryl Sandberg clearly puts a high value on dinner with the family and keeps it scheduled. Yes, she wants to maximize the success of Facebook, but the success of her relationship with her children is even more important. Richard Branson places a high value on fun and adventure and calendars it accordingly, and he smartly crafts his adventures into brand building for Virgin. Research says, People who leave work at a consistent time are less likely to feel wired later at night. Source, The Cruise Group, 2015. Do you need to be everything for everyone? Jessica Turner, the author of The Fringe Hours, Making Time for You, Surveyed over 2,000 women for her book and, among other things, asked them to describe the hardest part of being a woman. The common theme? Being everything to everyone. This is something Turner relates to herself. In addition to being a writer, she runs the highly popular Mom Creative blog at themomcreative.com. She has a husband, three children under the age of six, and tries hard to maintain her friendships. She describes how these multiple roles can become unhealthy. For women, this disease to please can wreak havoc on every area of our lives. We are nurturers by nature. We want to help and love on others. But sometimes our actions are not an outpouring of love, but a result of wanting to please someone else. This phenomenon is closely related to the disease of perfectionism. It's dangerous to base our self-worth on what others think of us. Many people are surprised that I, as a man can relate to a lot of what Turner's describing in her book. Perhaps it's because I'm a single dad and I'm accustomed to maintaining a household. Regardless of the reason, I still spend too much time, and more importantly, too much stress, on little things that really don't matter. Recently, my financial advisor told me he was going to be in my neighborhood and wanted to stop by my home give me an update on my money. It was a sign of high service and I was grateful. But my mind immediately took off. Better brew a pot of coffee. Is the fridge stocked with Coke? What if he drinks Diet Coke? Do I have any of that? We'll be meeting in the kitchen. Need to clean the kitchen counter. Is he allergic to cats? I should lock them in the basement. It's completely ridiculous to think this way about my advisor making a house call. Among the numerous reasons, he works for me. He'll keep working for me if I keep paying him. He knows far more important things about me, like my net worth, than my kitchen. He's a guy and is probably in awe that another guy is able to keep the house as clean as I do. He knows me personally, and I'm sure he judges me by my values and kindness, not my hospitality skills. It's one thing to have good manners and to want to treat friends well, and it's another to feel like you have to be perfect. Instead of running around for half an hour preparing for a visitor, I could have just greeted him with a smile and asked, can I get you some water? As Turner says in her book, you are never too busy to make time for what you love. It's just a matter of prioritizing evaluating how you spend your days and dedicating time for what you value. If something's really important to you, you will find a way to fit it into your life. There will always be more to do. There will always be more to do in every area. You can always do more stuff at work. You can always straighten up more rooms and clean more closets. You can always do more yard work. More, more, more. So you need to master the practice of letting go of the more, since there will always be more to do. Once you master this, you'll find it easier to get those workouts in, easier to get home to the family at a reasonable hour, and easier to spend time on yourself without feeling guilty. How does this apply if you're an entrepreneur? Would realizing there will always be more to do enable you to spend more time with your family and friends? Executive, would realizing there will always be more to do enable you to hit the gym on a more consistent basis? Freelancer. Would realizing there will always be more to do enable you to spend more time learning new skills and thinking strategically about your future? Student. Would realizing there will always be more to do enable you to be satisfied with a good grade instead of a perfect grade? Stay-at-home parent. Would realizing there will always be more to do enable you to give yourself an hour a day for reading, exercising, or scrapbooking? Secret number five. Accept the fact that there will always be more to do and more that can be done. How much better will you feel when you finally accept the fact that you can't do it all because there will always be more that can be done? Free bonus? To download all your free bonuses, visit www.masteryourminutes.com. Chapter 6. Richard Branson's Secret Productivity Tool. How can you get your brain to quiet down? How can you always remember your great ideas? Branson's most important possession. Sir Richard Branson, arguably the most celebrated entrepreneur of our time, founder of the Virgin Group, which now comprises over 400 companies, Branson is reportedly worth $4.8 billion. When asked about items he takes wherever he goes, Branson singled out one item as being most important. In a May 5, 2006 interview, he said, It may sound ridiculous, but my most important is to always carry a little notebook in your back pocket. I think the number one thing that I take with me when I'm traveling is the notebook. I could never have built the Virgin Group into the size it is without those few pieces of paper. Branson, writing on his blog, elaborated on his note-taking habits. He said, If you have a thought but don't write it down, by the next morning it may be gone forever. One time, when Branson had an idea for a business metaphor, He didn't have a notebook nearby, so he just scribbled the thought down in his passport. Advice from billionaire Aristotle Onassis. Greek shipping magnate Aristotle Onassis once gave an interview in which he shared his million-dollar lesson. Always carry a notebook. Write everything down. When you have an idea, write it down. When you meet someone new, write down everything you know about them. That way you will know how much time they're worth. When you hear something interesting, write it down. Writing it down will make you act upon it. If you don't write it down, you will forget it. That is a million-dollar lesson they don't teach you in business school. Jim Rohn's Three Treasures Self-made millionaire and legendary success coach Jim Rohn wrote and spoke frequently about the power of journaling. If you're serious about becoming a wealthy, powerful, sophisticated, healthy, influential, cultured, and unique individual, keep a journal. Keeping a journal is so important, I call it one of the three treasures to leave behind for the next generation. The first treasure is your pictures. Take a lot of pictures. The second treasure is your library. This is the library that taught you, that instructed you, that helped you defend your ideals. It helped you develop a philosophy. It helped you become wealthy, powerful, healthy, sophisticated, and unique. The third treasure is your journals. The ideas that you picked up, the information that you meticulously gathered. But of the three, journal writing is one of the greatest indications that you're a serious student. Notebooks of 20 Famous People The blog, The Art of Manliness, has a great article that shows pictures of the notebooks of 20 famous men, including Mark Twain, George Patton, Thomas Jefferson, Charles Darwin, George Lucas, Ernest Hemingway, Ludwig von Beethoven, Ben Franklin, Thomas Edison, Leonardo da Vinci, Frank Capra, and John Rockefeller. Although you can see a wide range of notebook styles and penmanship, All show how these great thinkers were never without a means to jot down an observation, an idea, or in Mark Twain's case, dirty jokes. What type of notebook is best? There are different strokes for different folks. Many creative wannabes use Moleskine notebooks. I use them myself. These high-quality, leather-bound books are made in Italy and cost from $9 to $25. Some Moleskine fans are switching to ecosystem, including Michael Hyatt. Michael Hyatt's blog is michaelhyatt.com/why-i-ditched-my-moleskine-journal.html. He switched because they use recycled paper, they're made in the USA, and each page is perforated. For many years, I preferred the more expensive and, unfortunately, very nerdy Burham and Pease account book. It's a hardcover, 300-page book. It lasts a long time, thick enough to stand up and stand out on a bookshelf, and so big I never misplaced it. Author and entrepreneur James Altucher recommends waiter's pads, which cost 10 cents each. He explains they're the perfect size and a great conversation starter. They also show people you're frugal. Notice that nobody's recommending yellow legal pads or loose pieces of paper. They're just too easy to get lost in stacks or otherwise damaged. Notebooks are designed to last. In their own words, Sarah Hendershot. I use this Moleskine notebook that I'll just carry around with me. I make training notes in it. I make work notes in it. I have a whole bookshelf full of old ones at home, because I'll go back and refer to old things in it all the time. Sarah Hendershot is an Olympic rower for the United States and competed in the 2012 Olympics. She's currently training for Rio 2016. I use the bullet journal as my go-to organization system. It keeps ideas, thoughts, and other important agenda items at my fingertips. I highly recommend keeping a journal because a life worth living is a life worth recording. Honoré Corder is an author, speaker, and personal transformation expert. While apps can be wonderful and help us increase productivity, I prefer to plan my Moleskine Executive Daily. Natalie McNeil is an Emmy Award-winning media entrepreneur, creator of SheTakesOnTheWorld.com, and author of The Conquer Kit. Take notes by hand, not on a laptop. Using paper-based bound notebooks for notes is better than taking notes on a laptop, tablet, or smartphone. Let the hate mail begin. First, let me say that if you have dyslexia or another learning disability and can really only record notes by typing them into a digital device, go for it. It's not a sin. I'm not trying to bias the world against you. But if you're using a digital device as a general preference and just think I'm being an old-fashioned Luddite, I encourage you to consider an interesting article The Pen is Mightier Than the Keyboard, published in the journal Psychological Science in 2014. Pam Mueller and Daniel Oppenheimer, psychologists at Princeton University and the University of California, Los Angeles, did three different experiments with 327 undergraduates. In one study, students watched a TED Talk, took notes, and then took a test on it 30 minutes later. While the laptop users and handwriters scored the same on factual questions, the laptop users did worse on the conceptual questions. Noticing that laptop users were transcribing the TED Talk instead of noting key concepts, doctors Mueller and Oppenheyer did a second study and specifically told the laptop users to just take notes in their own words. The results were the same. Handwriters had better recall of the material. One defense of laptop note-taking is that it enables you to take a more complete set of notes, which is helpful when you need to review the material at a later date. In other words, you'll have more of the raw content to study. So the researchers did a third study in which students took the test a week later and were given time to study before the test. Once again, handwriters scored higher. This latest research from Princeton and UCLA just confirms what others have discovered in the past. The act of taking notes by hand involves active listening, cognitive processing, and finally, recalling it to record it. People who take notes with a laptop tend to just robotically record spoken words without doing the mental work to process it. And don't forget, if you want to keep a digital, searchable archive of all your notes, you can always scan them into Evernote, use the JotScript 2 Evernote stylus, or use the Scribe notebook by Moleskine. My personal notebook system. There are many different fancy Moleskine systems available, including people who cut out tabs or use fancy labeling systems. You might find inspiration in my Kevin Cruz Moleskine Genius System. All right, I just made that up. I don't have a fancy name for my system. To me, the more complicated I make a paper notebook, the less likely it is I'm going to use it. So I just keep it simple. Get yourself a brand new notebook. I'm back to using Moleskine. Doesn't it feel great in your hands? Get yourself some Pilot G2 gel pens. They're cheap and a joy to write with. I also like Sharpie extra fine point pens. Tape your business card to the front cover so if you ever leave it behind in a conference room or an airplane, a good Samaritan will get it back to you. Some people will write on the inside front cover. If found, please call or email me. I will pay reward to get this back. Write the current date on the inside cover so you can quickly locate the notebook in the future if you're trying to find notes from a specific meeting or event. Some people like to use a Sharpie to write the start date on the edge of the pages when the book is closed, so it can be seen even without opening the notebook. Five, jot down everything and anything you don't want to forget. Record random creative ideas, new ideas for books you want to write, companies you want to start, products to invent, new marketing tactics, gift ideas for your family, future vacation destinations, restaurant recommendations, a great bottle of wine, names for your baby, whatever. Write everything down and you'll never worry or stress about forgetting something again. Six, whenever you encounter great advice or an inspirational quote, whether someone says it or you read it, write it down on the back of the book. Reserve pages in the back for these nuggets of wisdom so they can all stay together and be easily reviewed in the future. Seven, at the beginning of each phone call or meeting, write the date, time, and names of the people you are speaking with. Jot down any notes from the call, especially any follow-up items or commitments people are making. If you're meeting people for the first time, draw a little diagram of the conference table and write their names in the location where they're sitting to help you remember them. Jot down notes from the meeting, but don't try to record everything that is said. You're not a court reporter. Just try to record key goals, actions, next steps. Summarize. Nine. When you have filled your notebook, write the end date on the inside front cover, again to help you locate the right book in the future when you have a whole row of them on your bookshelf. Put the book up on the shelf next to the previous journals. Here will be a detailed record of your entire life. Every New Year's Day, make it a new tradition to thumb through your old journals from the previous year. You'll be amazed at how much you'll relearn from your notes, and it'll remind you of all your progress. For any thoughts or ideas that you'll want to revisit in the current year, just rewrite them in your new or current notebook. I also use shorthand that adds clarity to my freeform notes. I put an open square next to any item that is a to-do, which I'll put on my calendar as soon as possible. I put an open circle next to any item that is an event to calendar later. I put an exclamation mark next to items that require a follow-up action from me. I put a question mark next to items that I want to ask about at the end of the meeting. I put an asterisk next to items that are important or key themes from an event. How does this apply if you're an entrepreneur? Would a notebook help you keep a record of all the commitments colleagues make during meetings? Executive, would a notebook help you record all that you accomplished throughout the year? Freelancer, would a notebook help you remember key client obligations? Student, would a notebook help you to capture key lecture notes? Stay-at-home parent. Would a notebook help you to capture all the random-to-do items that occur each day? Remember, you can review and transfer them to your calendar at a later time. Secret number six, always carry a notebook. How much less stress will you feel when you begin to dump everything important into your notebook? Free bonus? To download the Get the Most From Your Notebook Quick Reference Card and other free bonuses, visit www.masteryourminutes.com. Com. Chapter 7. How to Get to Zero Emails in Your Inbox Every Day. How can you empty your email inbox quickly and keep it from interfering with truly productive work? Email as a cognitive slot machine. According to a survey conducted by the McKinsey Global Institute, office workers spend 2.6 hours per day reading and answering emails, which equates to 33% of a 40-hour work week. Okay, okay, nobody only works 40 hours anymore, but it's still a big chunk of an average work week. Clearly, people send too much email at work, and as the dominant form of professional communication, it's hard to ignore. But you have to take responsibility for your own role in email overwhelm, too. Your brain uses email, and all social media, like a cognitive slot machine. Like pulling a slot handle, there's anticipation, which feels good as you go to check for new messages. And most of the time, it's a bust, nothing there. But every now and then, ding, 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 oh look, an interesting article. Or even, oh, someone has a question I can answer in only five minutes. I'm so helpful and productive. And our brain releases a bit of dopamine with every triple cherry on the email slot machine. Ah, that feels good, which makes us come back and check it again and again. Yes, you receive too much email, but you need to take responsibility for handling it. 7 Steps to Mastering Your Email Unsubscribe from email newsletters. Come on, you really need to subscribe to all those fashion websites, those flash deals of the day offers, those viral clickbait news headlines? Don't give permission to all those companies to intrude on your day, to interrupt your flow, to tempt you with their offers. They're trying hard to get into your head, but they can't if they're not in your inbox to begin with. Just go into your email and search for unsubscribe, and then unsubscribe from all the email newsletters that you find. You can also go to a cool website called www.unroll.me, and it will let you easily unsubscribe from the newsletters you want to trash, and then it will consolidate the newsletters you want to keep into one big daily email. Turn off all email notifications. Email is not intended to be an urgent form of communication, and especially in these times when most of us are getting 50 to 500 emails a day, Getting email notifications is a sin. Notifications interrupt your concentration, your work sprints, and your ability to be present and mindful during meetings and conversations. Whether you have an audible ding, a phone vibration, or a little window that pops up with every new mail, turn all that off. Only process email three times a day using the 3210 system. Schedule three times a day to process your email, morning, noon, and night. Set the timer on your phone for 21 minutes and try to get to inbox zero in that time. Make a game out of it. 21 minutes is intentionally not enough time, but it will keep you focused. Ensure that your responses are short and that you don't start clicking links out onto the wonderful world of internet distractions. Immediately apply the four D's. Every time you open an email, you should be ready to do it, delegate it, defer it, or delete it, which means archive it. If you defer an email, in most cases, that means immediately adding an entry to your calendar, moving the email to a calendar entry. Remember, no to-do lists. When you think delete, most cases, you should really just archive it. These days, with virtually unlimited storage space, it's easy to just hit the archive button on most things, knowing that you can use the search function to get it back again in the future. In addition to the four Ds, consider F for file it. In my opinion, this is just another form of archiving. But it can be helpful, especially if you're nervous that you might not be able to find something again. Just create folders for all your projects, clients, or something even crazy like respond to someday. And then drag emails related to those topics into the folders to keep your inbox nice and clean. In their own words, Jonah Berger. Meetings, phone calls, and emails can break up your entire day if you let them, leaving you little time to get any big thinking done. Cancel meetings you don't need, and only check email a few times a day. Jonah Berger is a marketing professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, and he's the author of Contagious, Why Things Catch On. Danny Einie. How do you create an effective work routine? Simple, by choosing what you want it to be rather than letting others dictate it for you. Except that most people do exactly the opposite, opposite, through one simple, terrible habit they check their email first thing in the morning. This means that their focus and energy are going where others are directing it rather than where they stand to make the greatest impact. Danny Iney is the founder of marketing education firm Firepole Marketing, as well as the best-selling author of Engagement from Scratch and The Audience Revolution. Think twice before you forward CC or BCC. As reported in an August 9, 2013 article in the Wall Street Journal, London-based International Power reduced total email traffic by 54% just by encouraging their top executives to think twice before they forwarded an email or added anyone to the CC line. Too often we forward or CC someone in the spirit of keeping them in the loop, but in reality, we're contributing to the information overload problem. Remember, every email you send and every CC you include means you're likely going to get a reply back into your own email box. If you send less email, you'll receive less email. Use the subject line to indicate the action required. An ideal subject line doesn't just indicate the subject of the email, but also the type of action it requires. This helps email recipients to process your email in less time, and they'll learn to reciprocate. The idea is to preface your subject line message with some meta information. I like to use all caps to make this part of the subject stand out from the message. Here's some examples. FYI, and then the subject. Use the FYI designation when you're just passing info along as a courtesy. Action required by date, subject, or to do by date. Use action required when your recipients should take an action, but they don't report to you. Use to do when you're giving a directive to someone who does report to you. NRN. NRN stands for No Response Needed and can be used to eliminate the polite response emails that people often send like, thanks, or looks interesting, or I'll take a look at this next week, etc. Subject EOM, my personal favorite. EOM stands for end of message and lets you put super short messages right in the subject line. EOM tells the recipient, don't bother opening this one because all the content is in the subject line. Keep emails short, really short. Realize that being brief isn't rude. It's a sign of respect for the other person's time, in addition to your own. There's even a movement that suggests we consider email messages to be similar to text messages. The website 5.sentence.es, five sentences, suggests you limit all your emails to five sentences or fewer, and then add a footer message that directs people to the website for an explanation. In their own words, Naomi Simpson why use 100 words when 10 words will do? Whether that's in an email, a report, a presentation, or a pitch, brevity can be powerful. Naomi Simpson, founder of Red Balloon, and is the author of Live What You Love, and she's an investor on Shark Tank Australia. Ryan Holmes, keep emails short and sweet. Over the years, I've trained myself to write three-sentence emails, a concept that I expound on. Leaving out the fluff and keeping only the most essential points It saves my time and it saves the reader's time. Ryan Holmes is the founder and CEO of Hootsuite. How to get to inbox zero in 10 minutes. My friend Christine has over 10,000 emails in her inbox, most of them unread. Perhaps you can relate. If this is the situation you find yourself in, you might want to declare email bankruptcy and quickly start at inbox zero before applying the email management steps in this chapter. My suggestion is, one, Deal with all email that arrived within the last 48 hours. Two, create a folder called Old Emails. Three, move all of the emails sitting in your inbox into the Old Emails folder. Voila, you're starting fresh at inbox zero. Is this sort of cheating? Maybe. Couldn't you just archive all your emails instead of creating a new folder? Yes. (laughs) But why haven't you previously deleted or archived or filed your emails? Why are they sitting there to begin with? Most people tell me that they're afraid there's something valuable that they'll never find again. They don't seem to trust the archive function or know how to use it. So a simple solution is just to create your own labeled folder and move everything there. Enjoy! How does this apply if you're an entrepreneur? Would keeping your email inbox clean reduce your levels of stress and enable you to spend more time on revenue-producing activities? Executive, would reducing the time spent on email enable you to spend more time on strategic priorities? Freelancer, would reducing the time spent on email enable you to spend more time advancing your skills? Student, I'm guessing you don't use email very much. Stay-at-home parent, would eliminating the number of email newsletters you receive help you to spend more time productively? Secret number seven, email is a great way for other people to put their priorities into your life. Control your inbox. Are you ready to commit to checking email no more than three times a day? Free bonus. To download your Get to Inbox Zero infographic and other free bonuses, visit www.masteryourminutes.com. Chapter 8. Meeting Hacks from Google, Apple, and Virgin How can you immediately shorten the time spent in meetings by one-third? Been to a great meeting lately? Yeah, I didn't think so. Most meetings are poorly organized, poorly facilitated, and highly inefficient. In a survey conducted in 2015 by Clarison, 35% of those polled said their weekly status meetings were a waste of time. And if a dozen people are sitting in a one-hour waste-of-time meeting, it's actually a waste of 12 hours. That's a dozen hours of lost productivity, often to present or review information that could have been covered in minutes through a different medium. Yet Harvard professor Nancy Cohn estimates that 11 million meetings are held in the U.S. each day. Why meetings suck? Why do the majority of meetings suck so badly? Meetings start late. Whether a result of unprofessional behavior or the fact that many people literally have meetings stacked back to back, most meetings end up starting late. This becomes a cultural phenomenon as late meetings actually train people to arrive late. When everyone knows the meeting won't start until 5 or 10 minutes past the hour... They don't bother showing up on time. When dozens, hundreds, or even thousands of people in an organization sit around waiting for other people to arrive, those minutes add up to many hours over the course of a year. The wrong people are in the meeting. The default idea seems to be, when in doubt, invite them. This wastes the time of the person who was invited and who may not have had the professional courage to say, no thanks. And if that person feels compelled to ask questions or to give input, it wastes the time of everyone else in the meeting, too. Parkinson's Law of Triviality, also known as the Bike Shed Effect. This law states that organizations spend the most time on trivial issues and the least time on the most important issues. The story goes that a committee must make several decisions related to an expensive nuclear power plant. The approval of the power plant goes quickly, with little input, because it's too complicated of a topic for most participants to weigh in on. Yet when it comes to deciding on the design of the Bike Shed for the staff, Since everyone understands the trivial project, great time is spent nitpicking and debating it. Meetings break up the day in illogical ways and may interfere with flow or peak concentration times. The wrong people dominate meetings. By their nature, the overconfident and the extroverts tend to dominate the communication in a meeting at the expense of others who may know more but are less inclined to share in a meeting format. The Mark Cuban Meeting Rule I reached out to hundreds of highly successful people as I was doing research for this book. By design, I was trying to contact the most successful people on the planet, and knowing that they only have 1,440 minutes a day, it never surprised me when people didn't respond to me. What did surprise me was when billionaire entrepreneur Mark Cuban responded to my email only 61 minutes after I sent it. In his typical direct-and-to-the-point style, Cuban's time management advice described his approach to meetings. In their own words, Mark Cuban, never take meetings unless someone is writing a check. Mark Cuban is the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, a serial entrepreneur and an investor on the TV show Shark Tank. Dustin Moskovitz, no meeting Wednesdays. If you think Mark Cuban's advice is a bit extreme or impractical, perhaps you can swear off meetings for just one day a week. In an interview for this book, Dustin Moskovitz shared his NMW productivity hack, which he brought with him from Facebook. In their own words, Dustin Moskovitz, pick one day a week that you and your team can focus on getting individual work done without any interruptions like meetings. At Asana, we have no meeting Wednesdays, established to encourage flow and productivity across the company. Dustin Moskovitz is the co-founder of team productivity app Asana and co-founder of Facebook. Others have taken to this one-day meeting reprieve and called them maker days. The idea is that everyone leaves everyone else alone, to focus on making stuff, especially if it's making progress on their most important task, their MIT. How to design effective meeting agendas. If you have to have a meeting, highly successful people know that effective meetings begin with effective agendas, which are circulated in advance. Secrets to creating effective agendas include seek input on the agenda from participants before the meeting so new topics don't crop up and derail the primary goal. Clearly state the purpose of the meeting. Clearly state who the facilitator is. Identify all invited participants. The fewer the better, but you also want to make sure a key person isn't being forgotten. Google tries to limit meeting participants to 10 or fewer. Steve Jobs was known to throw people out of the room if they couldn't come up with a good reason for being there. List agenda topics as questions whenever possible in order to focus the participants on decision-making. Attach time estimates to each agenda item so participants can monitor the progress and pace of the meeting and make sure time estimates are realistic. Google Ventures' secret weapon. Jake Knapp, design partner at Google Ventures, is an advocate for using a physical clock to count down the time remaining in a meeting. He discovered a specific type of timer called the time timer while visiting his child's classroom. Teachers have been known to call it the magic clock. Coming in various sizes for about $25 from Amazon.com, The Time Timer is a battery-powered device large enough to be seen by meeting participants from across the room. A red disc silently spins, showing the amount of time remaining. Why not just set a timer on your smartphone? As Knapp wrote on Medium, the Time Timer is way better than a timer app on a screen. Because it's physical, it's easier easier to adjust and set and absolutely impossible to ignore. During her time at Google, Marissa Mayer was known for using a projector attached to a laptop to display a giant countdown timer up on the wall of the meeting room. I can only assume she still uses this practice at Yahoo. The Steve Jobs meeting method. In 1999, a team of psychologists conducted research on the difference between sit-down and stand-up meetings across 56 different groups. As reported in the Journal of Applied Psychology, sit-down meetings were 34% longer than stand-up meetings but they produced no better decisions than the stand-up meetings. In a different study, researchers at Washington University in St. Louis determined that standing meetings were far better than sit-down meetings in terms of outcomes. They reported in Social, Psychological, and Personality Science that stand-up meetings led to better collaboration and less possessiveness of ideas, higher levels of engagement, and more problem-solving creativity. I still remember the first time I sold one of my businesses. Rudy Carson was the CEO of the acquiring company, and in my very first visit to his corner office, he jumped up before I could sit and said, let's go for a walk. 30 minutes later, we shook hands on a $2 million deal. Richard Branson isn't into traditional meetings either. He writes in his blog, one of my favorite tricks is to conduct most of my meetings standing up. I find it to be a much quicker way of getting down to business, making a decision, and sealing the deal. When given the opportunity, I often like to take things a step further. Literally, with a walking meeting. Steve Jobs was notorious for his long walking meetings, a practice that has been adopted by Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey as well. Marissa Mayer and Richard Branson hold 10-minute meetings. Why do all meetings seem to default to 30 minutes or one hour? It's almost as if people choose that duration because that's the default time block in the Outlook calendar. We all know that work tends to fill up the space allocated to it. In an interview with Bloomberg Business in 2006... When Marissa Mayer was still with Google, she now runs Yahoo. She told the interviewer that she holds up to 70 meetings a week. The only way she can cram them all in is to break down the 30-minute block into small meetings, sometimes as little as 5 or 10 minutes each. Virgin founder Richard Branson often talks about his aversion to meetings. In a blog post, he shared, it's very rare that a meeting on a single topic should need to last more than 5 to 10 minutes. In their own words, Ryan Delk. The default length of a meeting or call, both internally and externally, should be 20 minutes. Anything longer should be an exception. Even if you're just moving from 30-minute meetings to 20-minute meetings, you can fit in four to six more meetings, calls, or appointments in a day. Ryan Delk leads growth at Gumroad. No smartphones allowed. Do you check your phone for text messages or emails during business meetings? If you answered yes, research from the University of Southern California's Marshall School of Business, Suggest that you're annoying your boss and colleagues. Their study found 86% think it's inappropriate to answer phone calls during formal meetings. 84% think it's inappropriate to write texts or emails during formal meetings. 75% think it's inappropriate to read texts or emails during formal meetings. 66% think it's inappropriate to write texts or emails during any meetings. At least 22% think it's inappropriate to use phones during any meetings why do so many people especially more successful people find smartphone use in meetings to be inappropriate it's because when you access your phone it shows lack of respect you consider the information on your phone to be more important than the conversation in the meeting you view people outside of the meeting to be more important than those sitting in front of you lack of attention you're unable to stay focused on more than one item at a time the ability to multitask is a myth lack of listening You aren't demonstrating the attention and focus that's required of truly active listening. Lack of power. You're like a modern-day Pavlovian dog who responds to the beck and call of others through the buzz of your phone. To make the most valuable time spent in meetings, participants should mute and pocket their devices and just leave them in their pockets. Daily huddles eliminate other meetings. Can more meetings lead to fewer meetings? (laughs) I've worked with a lot of consultants over the years, but only Vern Harnish ever gave me the secrets to building highly successful, fast-growing companies. Harnish is the founder of the legendary Entrepreneurs' Organization, the CEO of Gazelles, and also the author of Scaling Up. One of the big aha moments I had from his work is that an organization can only move as fast as the leadership team. As goes leadership goes the rest of the company. To make sure everyone is moving fast and staying in sync, it's critical to establish a rhythm or cadence of meetings, the most important being the daily huddle. Initially, I was very skeptical. Daily huddles are quick stand-up meetings with you and your team members, no longer than 15 minutes, always scheduled at the same time each day. But I quickly discovered that once daily huddles were in place, they eliminated the need for many other longer one-off meetings. They reduced the number of phone calls and emails, and they had a dramatic impact on other variables, including employee engagement and cross-selling. The agenda of daily huddles include three things. One, what's up? Highlights from the last 24 hours, especially anything relevant to other team members. Two, numbers. This is to review any daily metrics, whether sales, conversion rates, widget production. Three, stuck. Are you stuck on anything, whether it's a problem to solve, red tape to cut, or a question that needs an answer? In their own words, Vern Harnish. Routine Sets You Free is the mantra underpinning our tools and approach in scaling up companies, including the 15-minute daily huddle with your team and spouse that will save everyone collectively over an hour each day and allow you to avoid minor train wrecks that grow into bigger problems. And take advantage of immediate opportunities. If you want to move faster, pulse faster. Vern Harnish is the CEO of Gazelles. Keep your daily huddles to 15 minutes. If they start to run longer people will be less likely to show up. Force people to be brief, and any stuck items that can't be solved immediately should be taken offline to be handled later. How does this apply if you're an entrepreneur? Would reducing the time spent in meetings enable you to spend more time improving your product? Executive. Would reducing the time spent in meetings enable you to spend more time coaching your team members? Freelancer. Would reducing the time spent in meetings enable you to spend more time finding new clients? Student. Do study groups truly help you with homework, or would you save time studying alone? Stay-at-home parent, how many meetings do you attend in support of the PTA, the soccer league, or other community events? Did you have more impact by actually having fewer meetings? Secret number eight, schedule and attend meetings as a last resort when all other forms of communication won't work. Look at the meetings on your calendar for the week ahead. How can you eliminate them or reduce their allotted time? Free bonus to download your Maximize Your Meetings poster and other free bonuses. Visit www.masteryourminutes.com. Chapter 9. One Little Word That Multiplies Success. Want a one-word magic spell that will instantly free up space in your calendar in the future? Focusing is about saying no. Quote, unquote, Steve Jobs. Email, social media, and text messaging has not only increased the overall amount of information we must deal with, it's also made it far too easy for other people to ask us for things. Often the requests are social or personal in nature. Want to hang out tonight? Want to go to happy hour? Want to go to lunch? And for people who have experienced any amount of business or financial success, the inbound requests to do lunch or grab coffee flood the inbox each day. Endless requests for our time. These are the requests I've received in the last 24 hours. From a business friend, let's grab lunch. From an author acquaintance, if you have something to say about the book, I'd be delighted if you'd post an Amazon review. You can do it here. From an agent, asking me to include her roster of clients on my top 100 leadership speakers list. From an entrepreneur I've never met, I'm now over here in Boston. A bit of a shock to the system with all the snow. And I'd welcome the opportunity to have a quick five-minute call, if that was at all possible, to say hello and seek your advice. From a wonderful local nonprofit leader letting me know about an upcoming fundraiser, I hope that everyone on the committee will sell 10 tickets. From the dean of a local college, I'm excited to talk to you about what we're doing here in the business department. Would you be available to meet for coffee one day? Nine emails from readers introducing themselves and telling me about their current challenge. And then, of course, are the requests that come through LinkedIn. I get 10 to 20 messages a day requesting a meeting or call to see if I'd like to invest in their company, review a new product offering, provide advice for their startup, help them to write their first book, and on and on. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not complaining about the requests, nor am I making fun of any of the people reaching out. On the contrary, I'm flattered and view these requests on my time to be a sign that I'm doing something right. And in fact, many of these requests I will respond to, Coffee with the Dean, for example, but we must be vigilant with our time. Remember, only 1,440 minutes in a day. In their own words, Sarah Hendershot. Part of being an Olympic athlete is just that there are a lot of things that I have to miss and moments or events that I have to skip. I've almost just gotten to the point where I'm used to having to say no to things. Sarah Hendershot is an Olympic rower for the United States, competed in the 2012 Olympics. She's currently training for Rio 2016. Even a 30-minute chunk of time for a phone call or coffee meeting means something else won't get done. It could be a poem that never gets written, a chunk of code that doesn't get debugged, a report that doesn't get proofed, a client that doesn't get called back until the next day, two miles that you don't get to run, or a brilliant idea that never occurs to you. There is always a price. Quote, unquote, the difference between successful people and very successful people is that very successful people say no to almost everything. Warren Buffett. Beware of distant elephants. They say that in the distance, even giant elephants at first look small. Unfortunately, many small things turn into big things when they actually arrive. Research says people who routinely say no to requests for their time report higher levels of happiness and energy. Source, The Cruise Group 2015. A young woman, an undergraduate at Dickinson College, emailed me out of the blue one day, told me she was a fan of my leadership work. She said her school had a speaker series each year. She asked if it was okay for her to suggest me. Sure, I said. That was my first yes. A month later, a Dickinson College administrator emailed a follow-up with a specific date for me to come speak and let me know there'd be no fee. Would I consider it? My typical speaking fee is $12,500 to $22,500. But I love speaking to students, and I always try to schedule at least one pro bono speech each month to a nonprofit group. I looked up the date on my calendar three months down the road, and the date was free. In fact, my whole week was unscheduled. Wow, the future was going to be really a lot less busy than the present. I was looking forward to it. I accepted the invitation. That was my second yes. As the date got closer, another student asked me if she could interview me for their college radio station while I was going to be there. I would have to arrive a couple hours earlier than my event. And I said, sure, I'd be honored. That was my third yes. A week before the event, a professor emailed to ask if I wouldn't mind speaking to his economics class about business and ethics and engagement. His class was earlier in the day. I love speaking to students. I'd be there anyway. Just now, a little earlier in the day. So, of course, I gave my fourth yes. As time ticked away and the pro bono event at the college got closer and closer, inevitably, things came up. My daughter's school play got scheduled for the same day. I would have to miss it. I was asked to do a corporate keynote event on the same day for my full fee. I had to turn it down. A TV news program in Australia wanted to do a live interview with me on the same day via satellite. But of course, I was already booked. Yes, it was a big bummer missing out on all those other things, especially my kids' play. I don't regret my original decision or the string of yeses that followed. But I share this story as an extreme example of how we mistakenly think we'll be less busy in the future than we are in the present. It's far too easy to accept a lunch date when you look at your calendar three weeks from now and see that you have no meetings or other lunch plans that day. Sure, that day looks great to grab a casual lunch. And then the day comes and it's filled with meetings and deadlines and family obligations. You have to realize whatever obligations and projects and tasks you have now, you'll also have them. In a month, six months, or a year. Unless you make a radical change in your life, (laughs) your kids will continue to get sick, play sports, require parent-teacher conferences. Your boss will still be giving you projects. Your car will still need oil changes and inspections. Your friends will still be throwing parties. Every yes is a no to something else. This is a lesson I even try to teach my kids. Every yes is a no to something else. It's not that they should say no to everything. It's that they should think it through. In their own words, James Altucher. If something's not a hell yeah, then it's a no. James Altucher is a best-selling author, active investor, and the host of The James Altucher Show. Rory Vaden. Multipliers realize that perfection is achieved not only when nothing more can be added, but when nothing more can be taken away. It is the permission to ignore, because anything we can say no to today creates more time tomorrow. Rory Vaden is the author of Procrastinate on Purpose and Take the Stairs. Nikhil Aurora and Alejandro Velas. True Focus is saying no to the things you really want to do. They're the co-founders of Back to the Roots. Melanie Benson. My best tool is to keep front of mind this idea. Everything you say yes to means you're saying no to something else. Melanie Benson is the co-author of Entrepreneur.com's Startup Guide to Starting an Information Marketing Business. My daughter had RSVP'd yes to a friend's birthday party. Then the pop singer Max Schneider announced a local concert date that fell right on the same date. What should she do? Oh, the teen angst. She told her friend she'd be at the party, and she needed to honor that commitment. My 11-year-old son signed up to play travel soccer. He's one of two goalies on the team. After the season was underway, he's asked to play a part in a local play. He really wanted to do it, but the play performance would mean he would miss one or two soccer games what to do. He made a commitment to his coach and fellow teammates, so he was going to play soccer. Again, the lesson isn't to always say no. Just realize that every yes will be a no to something else when the time comes. Understanding that there is always an opportunity cost will make you hesitate and really be careful about what you're agreeing to put on your calendar. Why it's hard to say no. Despite the fact that every yes is a no to something else, we find it so hard just to say no. There's many reasons. We're afraid to make people mad. We're afraid to hurt someone's feelings. We want to be liked. We don't want to be rude. We're raised to be polite. We underestimate how much time it will really take. We aren't clear on our own priorities. We feel good by being helpful. We like earning future return favors. Indeed, we're raised and socialized to want to help others in need. We value helping others. But uncontrolled... Saying yes to requests for time will quickly block out all the other things we value, including the very things that made us successful in the first place. We are self-imposing the pressure and the feelings of guilt when we say no. Give yourself permission to say no without guilt. You should not care about what others think of you for declining their requests. Seven easy ways to say no. First of all, know that no is enough. You don't owe it to anybody to have to say more than that. But if you're still struggling with just say no, then try these more subtle responses. I often send a response email beginning with, thanks for reaching out, and I continue with one of these messages. One, but I'm on a deadline right now, and I'm not taking any new meetings until I'm done. I use this approach often with strangers who cold contact me. I don't specify what the deadline is, since they're strangers, they don't need to know my details and shouldn't expect me to share. And the word deadline has a magic to it, a power that most people can relate to. Two, unfortunately, my schedule is so packed at this time, I can only take calls and meetings with paying clients. Thanks for understanding. I use this approach for people who are looking for free advice that will benefit them and their company tremendously. It's really incredible how often people who already have decent income and assets will ask for time and information that will make them a ton of money they don't think to hire someone for the answer. The approach above is a gentle nudge that they really want to talk to me about their business problem. They can do it if they're willing to pay. They almost always disappear instead. Three, and I'm happy to connect, but there is no daylight on my calendar until 2.15 p.m. Eastern time on, and I pick a date like five months in the future. This is what I usually say to someone who I don't know personally, but who's vaguely connected in some way. Maybe they're a friend of someone who used to work for me from years ago. The intent of this approach is to not reject them outright, but to let them know I'm hustling and have a very busy calendar. This response sends the message that their issue better be pretty important, and if they really want to meet with you, they'll take the offered time slot in the distant future. I found that most of these people just respond and say, oh, no worries, you sound swamped. Let's connect when you're less busy. And they go away. Four. And my next open slot for a phone call is 2 a.m. to 2.15 a.m. Eastern Time on Thursday of next week. Let me know if that works for you. Notice the time slot is a.m., not p.m. That's on purpose. I only use this line about once a year because if the person calls my bluff, I'll actually have to stay up late or drag my butt out of bed to take the call. But I use this on people who are really, really persistent. If I know they're a persistent stranger just trying to sell me something, I can easily just say no. But if a friend or business partner suggested they call me, I don't want to ignore them out of courtesy to my friend. But this approach puts a burden back on the requester. How badly do they want to talk to me? Are they really willing to do the call in the middle of the night? Usually they respond with, sure, next Thursday afternoon is great, but you had a typo and wrote AM. That would sure be a crazy time. And then I write back, no typo, I'm a 24-7 kind of guy and that's my only open slot for the next several months. Do you want it? I've never actually had a person in this situation ask for the call, which is really amazing. They're willing to impose on my time and try to get some life or career-altering information, yet they won't take the call at two in the morning. And if anyone ever says, you bet, I'll call you then. I can always respond and say, oh, I found a way to move something around and we can talk during normal business hours. Five, but I don't think I'm the best person. I'd like to refer you to... This is an easy one. People often request your time because they think you know something that can help them or that you're a decision maker that can buy something. If you aren't, or if you've delegated that decision-making power to someone on your team, use this approach. You can always qualify by saying something like, The fastest way to make progress on this is for you to talk directly to my colleague, Paulina. But don't worry, when you're talking to Paulina, you're talking to me. She's the ultimate decider here. Six, but I'm not able to take any more meetings or calls during normal business hours. But I can often catch up on emails during travel or at night. Would you like to communicate via email? This is probably the response I use most often. I really do try to respond to every email I get from readers, email from newsletter subscribers, referrals, etc. And email's way more efficient than live phone calls. Seven. And as a rule, I only schedule 15 minutes for first calls. If you're interested, could you send over a draft agenda so I can see what we'll be covering and what desired outcome you're hoping for? Again, if you don't want to just reject the person, this type of response is a good way to let them know you're very busy. So if they really want to talk to you, they'd better be willing to do some pre-work. I never hear from these people again. In their own words, saying no to friends. Think of the consequences and what the best decision is for you. Don't try to please others. Think of yourself first. Be careful of who you surround yourself with. If they're your friend, no will not be an issue. Wise words from Haley Silva, a straight-A student at Sierra High School. How does this apply if you're an entrepreneur? Would just saying no help you to reject reject Tangential meetings from outside parties, enabling you to stay focused on your current product roadmap? Executive, would just saying no help you to stay out of nice-to-have initiatives, enabling you to make progress on your quarterly objectives? Freelancer, would just saying no help to reduce your pro bono hours? Student, would just saying no help you to spend more time in the library, less time at the coffee shop? Stay-at-home parent. Would just say no help you to minimize your volunteering and maximize your parenting? Secret number nine, say no to everything that doesn't support your immediate goals. Which meetings, calls, and projects will you say no to in the upcoming weeks? Free bonus. To download your free bonuses, visit www.masteryourminutes.com. Chapter 10. The Powerful Pareto Principle. Could a simple analysis of your workload make 80% of it disappear? The amazing discovery in an Italian garden. Vilfredo Pareto was born in Italy in 1848. He would go on to become an important philosopher and economist. Legend has it that one day he noticed that 20% of the pea plants in his garden generated 80% of the healthy pea pods. This observation caused him to think about uneven distribution. He thought about wealth and discovered that 80% of the land in Italy was owned by just 20% of the population. He investigated different industries and found that 80% of production typically came from just 20% of the companies. 80% of results will come from just 20% of the action. This universal truth about the imbalance of inputs and outputs became known as the Pareto Principle, or the 80-20 rule. While it doesn't always come to be an exact 80-20 ratio, this imbalance is often seen in various business cases. 20% of sales reps generate 80% of total sales. 20% of customers account for 80% of total profits. 20% of the most reported software bugs cause 80% of software crashes. 20% of patients... Account for 80% of healthcare spending. And 5% of patients account for full 50% of all expenditures. On a more personal note, you might be able to relate to my unintentional 80-20 habits. I own at least five amazing suits. But 80% of the time, or more, I grab my black, well-tailored, single-breasted Armani with a powder blue shirt. Ladies, How many shoes do you own, and how often do you grab the same 20%? I have 15 rooms in my house, but I spend about 80% of my time in the bedroom, family room, and office. I'm not sure how many miles of roads there are in the small town where I live, but I bet I only drive on 20% of them. On my Samsung smartphone, I have 48 different mobile apps pinned to the tiles, but 80% of the time, I'm only using about 8 of them. When I go grocery shopping, I definitely spend the most time in the aisles that are around the edges of the store, produce, the fish market, dairy, breads, and generally I skip the aisles in the middle of the store, except health and beauty. As a massive introvert, I don't actually socialize too much, but you probably find that you spend 80% of your time with 20% of your friends and family members. In their own words, James Shrenko. I accept that I cannot do everything, so I work only on things that are vitally important using the 80-20 rule. James Shramko is the founder of Superfast Business. Yarrow The two primary productivity concepts I apply are the following. First, the 80-20 rule, which helps me to identify which tasks deliver the biggest rewards and thus I should focus on. Two, the theory of constraints. Which helps me to identify what the immediate constraint is that's holding me back from a desirable result. Yaro Sterich is the author of the blog Profits Blueprint and founder of Entrepreneurs-Journey.com. So how can we apply Pareto's principle to gain more time in our lives? 80-20 Business. In business, you could literally analyze your customer base and decide to fire 80% of the least profitable customers. I certainly fired many clients who weren't worth the trouble back in my day. You could do the same with your sales force. Apply the 80-20 rule and fire the majority of your sales representatives who are actually producing the least. This will enable you to reward the remaining highly successful reps with more accounts or larger territories and give you more time to support the winners on your sales team. You could look at all the products you're currently offering and using the 80-20 analysis. Get rid of the majority of your products that provide the least profit. This could eliminate the majority of customer service issues, free up room in your warehouse, and simplify your value proposition. If you're running a software company, make sure you're identifying which bugs are causing 80% of the phone calls to your help center. Eliminate those first, and you'll dramatically reduce your tech support costs. You can even apply 80-20 to your marketing efforts. I once interviewed Seth Godin at a conference and asked him why he didn't use Twitter. This was back when Twitter was all the rage, and given that Seth is viewed as a marketing guru, people were shocked that he wasn't engaged with the platform. He said, I have nothing against Twitter. There are only so many hours a day, and when I spend time on Twitter, I won't be spending time on other things, like writing a daily blog post. In this age of social media, so many of us feel like we have to be on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn. My gosh, I even have a Pinterest page. But a simple 80-20 analysis would reveal, that most of your engagement, most of your audience, probably comes from just one platform. You could let people know that that's where you'll be and then just ignore the rest. 80-20 yard work. How much time and money do you spend on your yard each year? Maybe your current practice is to mow the lawn, edge the lawn, apply fertilizer, other chemicals, weed the flower beds, trim the bushes and trees, plant flowers, sweep the sidewalk. If you don't do it yourself, think how much you spend on mowing, replacing mulch, buying lawn fertilizer, applying weed killer, trimming trees. The 80-20 rule would suggest that only 20% of yard maintenance activities account for about 80% of how your yard actually looks to the neighbors and others who are driving by your home. With that in mind, you might decide to mow and weed, but stop edging and planting seasonal flowers. Unless yard work is fun for you, of course. 80-20 Reading and Studying My favorite high school teacher gave me sound advice as I went off to college. She warned that the reading assignments would be unlike anything I had done before, a book a week for classes using fiction and multiple chapters a week from each textbook. She told me that if you read just the first and last paragraph of every chapter, as well as the first sentence of each paragraph in between, you'll understand 80% of the message of the book. I learned that it might not get you straight A's, but it can get you solid B's. Today, I have 3 overscheduled kids in school. As I help my teenage daughters study for high school tests, I now know to start by looking at the chapter summaries and chapter self-tests. Knowing what the textbook author thinks is most important, and then going back and finding the answers to those questions in the text itself, is much more efficient than reading the entire chapter from beginning to end. What's in the Dalai Lama's bag? My favorite story about the Dalai Lama was from an article in the Globe and Mail in 2002, The Dalai Lama travels the world frequently, teaching people about Buddhism and the plight of the Tibetan people. A man without many possessions, he always carries a small red bag wherever he goes. According to the reporter at one event, someone in the audience asked the Dalai Lama what was in this bag. Immediately, he opened it and began pulling out objects for all to see. A chocolate bar, a case for his glasses, a toothbrush, Kleenex tissues, and then after a pause, a single candy which he promptly unwrapped and popped into his mouth. How much stuff do you carry with you when you travel? Is too much stuff taking away your time? Most of my friends have second homes. Some are in New York, others at the Jersey Shore, others have ski cabins in the Poconos. They're surprised that I don't have a vacation home. What they don't realize is that I've listened very carefully when they talk about their homes. Rarely do they talk about how much joy they're getting from them. But I definitely hear it when they tell me that they have to deal with the aftermath of a break-in. Or that Hurricane Sandy put three feet of water into their first floor. Or that they've rented it out and someone trashed the place. A second home is just one example to show the truth that all objects come with a cost. Like collectible knickknacks that need to be dusted every week. The bigger the house, the more rooms that need to be cleaned. Electronic gadgets need to be learned, set up, stored. Bluetooth paired, ultimately fixed. Pools need to be cleaned. Pets need to get walked, groomed, and taken to the vet. Boats put in and taken out of the water. With three school-age kids, I think my suburban lifestyle is practical. But once the kids are all out of the house, I will be too. I envision getting rid of almost everything I own. I'll pack up the sentimental stuff. There won't be much. And I'll put it in a climate-controlled storage facility. And I'll just spend a year renting an amazing apartment in a different city each year until I get bored with that or die. New York, Barcelona, Amalfi, Sydney, Melbourne, Hong Kong, La Jolla, or Napa, who knows where. The lesson isn't that all things are bad. I have some toys to drive and a couple of cats. It's just that all things require time, and we should think twice before acquiring them. Well, we may not want to limit our possessions to only that which fits into one small red bag, we can probably take inspiration from the Dalai Lama, who clearly doesn't need objects to feel happy. The 80-20 Mindset The important takeaway from this chapter on the Pareto Principle is not to run around with a calculator and actually do the math to figure out 80% and 20% calculations in different areas of your life. It's more important to have a mindset of identifying the few things and activities that will give you outsized returns. You want to look for shortcuts. Do the most important things exceptionally well and the rest just good enough or not at all. Develop your skills to be exceptional in a few targeted areas, but don't try to master everything. Realize that you can work less, stress less, and increase your happiness by figuring out the 20% of goals and activities that are most important to you. How does this apply if you're an entrepreneur? Would an 80-20 mindset help you to stay focused on your strategic plan and spend less time chasing endless new opportunities? Executive. Would an 80-20 mindset help you to maximize the return from your limited resources? Freelancer, would an 80-20 mindset help you to focus on and service your most important clients? Student, would an 80-20 mindset help you to identify the content that matters most on a test? Stay-at-home parent, would an 80-20 mindset help you to manage the household without losing your mind? Secret number 10, 80% of outcomes are generated by 20% of activities. What 20% of your time generates 80% of your value? Free bonus? To download all your free bonuses, visit www.masteryourminutes.com. Chapter 11. The Three Harvard Questions That Save Eight Hours a Week. Can three simple questions really save you eight hours a week? The slacker who won a Best Coder Award. In January of 2013, several news outlets reported on the remarkable story of Bob. With Bob's programming speed and code quality, his company named him Best Coder in the Building, gave him an excellent performance review. He was a model employee. In his mid-40s, Bob clocked in by 9 each morning and sent his boss a daily summary of his productivity before he left at 5. But if we had been able to secretly peek over Bob's shoulder all day to discover how he spent his time, we would have seen something peculiar. On Bob's typical day, he would read Reddit and watch YouTube videos from about 9 to 11.30, which is when he would head out to his 90-minute lunch. Back at 1, Bob would then spend the next three and a half hours on eBay, Facebook, LinkedIn, and other social media sites. At 4.30, he would send a report to his boss and go home without writing a single line of code. The next day would be the same. How could this be? How could Bob, be his company's star programmer, yet goof off all day. It turns out that Bob was very smart. Instead of asking, how can I do this? He asked, how can this get done? The answer in Bob's case was that he outsourced his task, actually his job, to a software development company in Shenyang, China. Bob's company gave him approximately $200,000 a year to do his work, and he in turn gave $50,000 a year to a programmer in China to do it for him. For the longest time, Bob's company marveled at his productivity and quality while he surfed the internet eight hours a day. Eventually, Bob's company noticed unusual server access from China, and thinking they were being hacked, they stumbled onto Bob's brilliant scheme. They were not amused, and Bob was fired. Research says, People who actively look for things to delegate report higher levels of productivity, happiness, and energy, and are less likely to feel overworked and overwhelmed. Source? The Cruise Group 2015. Now if I had been the CEO, I would have doubled Bob's salary and made him the CTO. That way, he could have outsourced all the development work and saved the company millions of dollars. While Bob ultimately got fired for breaking company rules, we can learn a lot from his approach to getting things done. In their own words, Jeff Moore. See your day from a higher perspective. Avoid leveraging your time for money. Instead, leverage your expertise and delegate the rest. Jeff Moore is president of two seafood companies and the founder of a global mastermind group called Thursday Night Boardroom. Drop, delegate, or redesign. In September 2013, professors Julian Birkinshaw and Jordan Cohn shared the results of their productivity experiment in the Harvard Business Review. They found that 41% of knowledge workers' time is spent on discretionary activities, that weren't personally satisfying and could also be done by others. The researchers suggest that often we feel important when we feel busy. We feel engaged and satisfied as we make progress against tasks. And while meetings are often boring, they also provide an opportunity to leave the desk and to socialize a little bit. Once workers were trained by Burke and Cohn to slow down and to think about their activities in a new way, they achieved massive time gains. In fact, on average, The workers who were trained saved six hours of desk work and two hours of meeting time each week. So what's the secret to these massive time savings? The research trained everyone to analyze their tasks to see if they could drop, what items can I drop? What can I stop doing entirely? Delegate, what items can I delegate to a subordinate? What can I outsource? Redesign, what do I need to continue doing? But Do it in a new, time-efficient way. To put this into practice, make a list of all the tasks and meetings you worked on during the previous week and follow these steps. Ask, how valuable is this task to me or to the company? What would happen if I just dropped it completely? Ask, am I the only person who could do this? Who else in or outside the company could accomplish this? Ask, how can the same outcome be achieved but with a faster process? How could this task get completed if I only had half the time? Those three questions will give you the data you need to identify the tasks that are of low value and should be targeted to drop, delegate, or redesign. In their own words, Shane and Jocelyn Sams. Leverage every dime you have to outsource and buy other people's time. That is the key. Organize your 168 hours, then buy hours from others to grow. Shane and Jocelyn Sams built a high, six-figure business selling digital products and started FlippedLifestyle.com to help other families flip their lives with online businesses. Tony Robbins was a teen when he hired an assistant. I can remember being 25 years old mowing my lawn on a hot Saturday in August. I was the CEO of a startup, working over 80 hours per week, barely getting any sleep, getting no exercise, and I had no social life. And yet there I was, spending a couple hours mowing and edging my lawn. Sweat dripping off my chin, face baking in the sun, straining up the grassy hill, pushing the mower through a cloud of dirt and grass pollen, all the time thinking about the slide deck I needed to create before Monday, the hundreds of emails I needed to respond to, not to mention painting a bedroom, doing the laundry, and going grocery shopping. So why didn't I just hire some kid to mow my lawn for me? Because I had no money. I should say, I thought I had no money. I recently watched an interview with Tony Robbins. He tells a similar story of starting out, still just a teenager, and realizing that as broke as he was, he was going to hire help, initially for just two hours a day. He tells his story. I think in the beginning, the hard thing is you think you can only do it yourself, and there's only so many hours, and you've got kids and family and friends, and how do I do it all? The answer is you hire someone. You trade with someone. You trade them for two hours. That's what I did in the beginning. Because I remember, I remember, I'll never forget. I was just really young in my career, very in the early days, and I was running to get to the dry cleaner so I could get my only two suits. Because if I didn't get them, you know, then the place closes and I can't get on the plane. And I was running to the airport sweating like crazy and I'm a sweater anyway, sweating like this, trying to get in the door, and I was like, what's wrong with this picture? I could be doing something that's so productive and I'm standing in line at the dry cleaning place. This is just nuts. And so I was really, I was like 17, 18, 19, I don't know what I was, and I said, I'm going to hire somebody. Two hours a day, that's what I need to start with, and then it was four hours. And so my view is, I don't do anything that someone else can do better, and I don't do anything that isn't the highest and best use of my time. You need to start paying other people to do stuff for you, even before you feel you're ready. What would it cost to hire the kid down the street to mow your lawn each week? Are you a stay-at-home dad? What would it cost to hire an unemployed college grad to watch your kids an hour each afternoon till they have some alone time? In their own words, Andrea Waltz. Nothing will slow you down, take you off track, or keep you unproductive more than doing things which you both do not like to do and are not good at. Anything that falls into that category must be outsourced to someone else, ideally someone who both likes it and has competence, as soon as possible. The extent to which you continue on those types of tasks is what will hold you back from truly loving what you're doing and also being fulfilled. Andrea Waltz is the co-author of the best-selling book, Go for No, and also a professional speaker. Kim Walsh Phillips. I outsource anything I can using fantastic tools like Amazon Prime for two-day shipping and Peapod for grocery delivery, so I don't have to go to the store. Fancyhands.com to book appointments, look up vendors, research products, etc., Thumbtack for finding any household task that can be done, and ZocDoc for making doctor's appointments. Being a mom of two little ones and running a multi-office agency requires all the help I can get. Kim Walsh Phillips is a leading direct response social media marketer, best-selling author, keynote speaker, and founder of IO Creative Group. Venture capitalists suster on the value of an admin. Are you a startup CEO? What would it cost to hire a really good administrative assistant? Why spend money on an admin when you know how to use a computer and can do it yourself? There are only two blogs that I read religiously, and venture capitalist Mark Suster writes one of them. In both sides of the table, Suster gives advice to startup entrepreneurs. In his article, The Controversial First Role to Hire After Your A Round, Suster makes a compelling case for the value of an admin. He says, Your first hire after that first round of capital is an office manager or company-wide assistant. What? You're joking, right? No. While I'm passionate about being scrappy when you start and controlling your costs, I'm equally passionate about performance when you have a bit of cash. And I've seen way too many CEOs, founders get bogged down in minutia because they were used to it from the scrappy phase. They've struggled to scale. Think about it. Your single most valuable asset in the early days is your senior team. And presumably nobody's more valuable than the founding team. And you're bogged down in expense claims, booking hotel rooms, scheduling meetings, dealing with a leaky toilet, processing payroll, ordering computers, etc. If you don't have an admin, you are an admin. Even if you can do all the administrative work yourself, why should you? The one hour a day you spend running to the post office, balancing the checkbook, or booking airline tickets would be better spent calling prospects, learning, or thinking strategically. Always try to spend as much time as possible using your unique strengths on your highest leverage activities. Running out to Staples to buy printer paper probably doesn't fall into that category. In their own words, Lewis Howes. Focus on what you are great at and hire everyone else to do the rest. Lewis Howes is a best-selling author, entrepreneur, and former professional athlete. He's the host of the School of Greatness podcast. Today, you can Uber everything. Ever since the success of the 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss, using virtual assistants has been somewhat in vogue. Initially, using a virtual assistant or VA generally meant working with someone in India or the Philippines to screen your mail, schedule appointments, or other tasks. While some found these arrangements to be helpful, others found the language barriers and the lower quality of work to be unacceptable. But since the early days of VAs, the concept has really grown and morphed into the idea that you can outsource almost anything with very little prior planning. Uber was really the company that popularized the concept of on-demand mobile service. Remember being envious of the rich and famous with their chauffeurs? Well, in the same time, it would take you to say, home, James, you know, tap your Uber app and have your personal chauffeur show up and take you to your uh, destination. Spend too much time grocery shopping? See if Instacart, Peapod, or Fresh Direct operates in your area. For non-perishables, use Amazon.com, subscribe, and save. Need someone to do some internet research, make social media updates, make reservations at a restaurant, or cancel your cable? Try FancyHands.com. Have miscellaneous chores to complete. See if the folks on TaskRabbit will hop over to clean your oven, build your IKEA furniture, or organize your closets. And don't forget, for all your general freelance needs, Fiverr.com, Freelance.com, and Upwork.com. When the 4-Hour Workweek first came out, outsourcing was a novelty. Now it's just assumed that you can give the work to the best people and nobody cares where they're located. With Wi-Fi, Internet access, Skype, email, project management communication tools like Asana and Slack, working with remote team members has become no big deal. I live outside of Philadelphia and personally use virtual help for all kinds of things. Clarissa is one of my book cover designers. She lives in Singapore and I have no idea what she looks like. We've only communicated via email. Balaji lives in India, and I've used his team to do research projects, data mining, and slide designs. Serena answers my MailChimp email technical questions. When we first connected, she was spending time in Ireland, and now she's in Thailand. Camille is one of my book editors, whom I found on Fiverr.com. Her profile page says she lives in the United States, but I have no idea where. Matt and Chris are the two guys that handle my websites, I've never had to have a face-to-face project meeting with them. In addition to the team of remote freelancers I routinely work with locally, I also outsource these items. I pay $60 a week to a company to mow my lawn. I pay $100 to a guy to plow my driveway when it snows. I pay $150 every two weeks to a cleaning service to clean my house. I pay $20 an hour to a woman to help me to get my kids off to school each morning. I pay a bookkeeper to handle both my personal and business accounting needs. I never write a check myself. I hire plumbers, electricians, and painters to maintain my home, of course. But Mark Cuban still does his own laundry. So, what shouldn't you outsource? Notice that while I have someone who stops in a few mornings each week to help, I've never had a full-time nanny for my three kids. While I have good friends who have live-in nannies or daily full-time nannies, I just never felt comfortable with that myself. For me, I don't want a non-family member living in my house, And parenting is my first value, so I want to do it myself as much as I can. I'm fortunate in that I have a lot of schedule flexibility that enables this. I'm not judging others who are making different choices. I do it consciously, knowing that it's costing me potential income and career advancement. I also do my own grocery shopping, almost every day or every other day. This makes no sense from a time optimization standpoint. But I actually like it. I like having the freshest fruits and vegetables and fish possible, And zipping quickly through the store is my way of going to the market each day. Since I work from home, it's a good excuse to get some fresh air and sunlight. Billionaire Mark Cuban revealed on Shark Tank that he still washes his own laundry. I do too. It'd be easy for me to have someone stop in each week to do my laundry or to drop it at a dry cleaning place. It'd be easy for you to do that. And maybe you should. But I just find it grounding somehow to do my own laundry. The bottom line is you should try to outsource everything. Everything you can. Unless you enjoy doing it, it's part of your rest and recharging process, it's part of your values to continue doing the task, or it costs you more per hour to outsource it than you want to make yourself. In their own words, Jay Baer. Every year, audit your time and find a way to delegate at least 15% of what you're doing. Jay Baer is the founder of Convince & Convert, a keynote speaker and author of Utility. How does this apply if you're an entrepreneur? Would being aggressive about outsourcing help you to spend more time using your unique abilities? Executive. Would being aggressive about outsourcing enable you to reduce project costs? Freelancer. Would being aggressive about outsourcing enable you to spend more time utilizing your true talent? Student. Would being aggressive about outsourcing, your laundry perhaps, help you to spend more time studying for the big exams? Stay-at-home parent. Would being aggressive about outsourcing give you a few hours to exercise or to just recharge? Secret number 11. Focus your time only on things that utilize your unique strengths and passions. What are you going to outsource starting next week? Free bonus. To download all of your free bonuses, visit www.masteryourminutes.com. Chapter 12. Why Twitter Co-Founder Jack Dorsey Themes His Days What if one simple change to your calendar enabled you to have a quantum leap in your productivity? Jack Dorsey's Productivity Secret Jack Dorsey is the co-founder of Twitter and the founder and CEO of Square. For a while, Dorsey worked full-time at both companies. 16 hours a day, 8 hours at each. In a 2011 interview at Techonomy, Dorsey explained his secret to his productivity. The only way to do this is to be very disciplined and very practice. The way i found that works for me is I theme my days. On Monday, at both companies, I focus on management and running the company. We have our directional meeting at Square and we have our opcom meeting at Twitter. I do all of my management one-on-ones on that day. Tuesday is focused on product. Wednesday is focused on marketing and communications and growth. Thursday is focused on developers and partnerships. Friday is focused on the company and the culture and recruiting. Saturday I take off, I hike. Sunday is for reflection, feedback, strategy, and getting ready for the week. And there are interruptions all the time, but I can deal with an interruption and know that it's Tuesday and I have product meetings and I need to focus on product stuff. It also sets a good cadence for the rest of the company. We're always delivering. We're always showing where we were last week and where we're going to be the following week. How John Lee Dumas Themes His Days John Lee Dumas built a million-dollar business in a few short years on the success of his daily podcast, Entrepreneur on Fire. Dumas' colleague, Kate Erickson, wrote a 2014 year-in-review blog post in which she described the impact daily themes have had on their business. Something that we also both found success with doing is creating themes for each day of the week. For example, John's podcast, Day is Tuesday, That's when he does all of his podcast interviews for Entrepreneur on Fire. Another example, Wednesdays are our webinar days. This is when we schedule our live podcast workshops, our webinar workshops, and our exclusive community webinars. Having themes for our days makes it easier to plan ahead, easier to stay on track. Having an entire day set aside for a theme creates a bigger space in which to accomplish things, and a smaller chance that you'll just set it aside until tomorrow. Three themes from Dan Sullivan. Renowned entrepreneur coach Dan Sullivan suggests that we theme every week around three different kinds of days. Focus days. These are game days focused on our most important activities, typically revenue-producing activities. These are also the days when we should ideally be using our unique talents. Do what you do best. Buffer days. These are days to catch up on emails and calls, hold internal meetings, delegate tasks, catch up on paperwork, and complete any training or educational activities that are related to work. Free days. These are days without any kind of work. These are days for vacation, fun, or perhaps charity. No work-related emails, calls, or thinking should be done on these days. It's a time to rejuvenate. Designing my ideal week. I try to theme my days as well, but not quite to the point of Dorsey, Dumas, or Sullivan. Here's what my typical week looks like. Monday. Monday. First day of the week is my day for internal management meetings, similar to Dorsey. I meet one-on-one with each direct report as a way to review key developments from the previous week and review activities and goals for the week ahead. I also end the day with a team meeting where everybody briefly shares what their week looks like so there's a contextual awareness within the whole company. To be honest, I don't like Mondays because I don't like meetings, but I love starting each week with a huddle that I know will make the next four days highly productive. Tuesday through Thursday, The days in the middle of each week are my focus days. In my current business, these are days that I spend writing new books, designing e-learning courses, or writing marketing material. Those items are the output that generate revenue and are definitely utilizing my unique strengths. Friday? The end of my week is my buffer day that I use to process bills, catch up on email, or to respond to readers. An office hour theme. In addition to my days of the week themes, I also theme the last Friday of each month as my day to book lunch or coffee appointments. I'm inundated with can we grab a coffee request each week, and for those invitations I want to accept, I just give them the next open time slot on my last Friday of the month. The waiters at La Stalla in Newtown are always amused as I arrive at 11 a.m. and I just sit at the same table as a string of guests come and go each hour. I pick up the bill at the end of the day, which usually includes three or four lunches, I only eat one, and about 10 coffees. Best-selling author Dave Kirpin similarly themes a block of time on a weekly basis for outside meetings. He explained to me, while I take meetings with just about anyone who wants to meet with me, I reserve just one hour a week for these office hours. Sandwich vacation with buffer days. I used to hate vacations. They stressed me out. The idea of vacation was fine. But then the day before vacation would be an insane scramble of trying to hand things off while doing a normal day's work. The first few days of vacation would consist of me either dealing with the undone things via phone and email, or worrying about those things if I was trying to unplug. The day back from vacation would make me nauseous, scrambling again to catch up on emails and calls while diving back into a normal day of meetings. To gain a quantum leap in vacation quality, just schedule a buffer day before and after your vacation. Book in your vacation with days that are time-blocked for catching up. No pre-planned meetings, no project work, no lunch catch-ups. Just block out that time, especially the day back from vacation, to catch up on emails, phone calls, mail, and quick stand-up meetings with staff or to get back up to speed. Just knowing you have this time to hand off work in an organized fashion and then time to catch up again will help you to truly rest and relax while you're away. Want the secret to making this work? Tell your admin which day you'll be returning to work, but tell him or her to leave quote-unquote vacation marked on your calendar for everyone else to see. That way you won't get scheduled into meetings or have people pounce on you as soon as you walk in the door. How does this apply if you're an entrepreneur? Would it be helpful to theme product development and customer acquisition days? Executive. Would it be helpful to time block internal meeting times, but also free thinking times? Freelancer. Would it be helpful to theme one day a week just to deal with pesky things like finding clients and sending invoices? Student, would it help to theme one night a week as party night and another night for study in the library? Stay-at-home parent, would it be helpful to theme Sunday afternoon as time to pre-cook a week's worth of meals? Secret number 12, batch your work with recurring themes for different days of the week. How much more productive would you be? How much less stress would you feel if your days were organized to maximize your effectiveness? Free bonus. To download all of your free bonuses, visit www.masteryourminutes.com. Chapter 13. Don't touch until you're ready. Can one small change in your habits gain you dozens of minutes each day and free up mental energy? How do you sort your mail? You can tell a lot about people by how they go through their daily mail. Here's how I used to do it. After a long day at work, I come home, grab the mail from the box, and walk back into my kitchen. Curious and procrastinating, I flip through the stack. Junk mail, electric bill, junk, mortgage statement, junk, junk, magazine, handwritten card with no return address, junk, junk, car loan, junk, junk. This small card certainly stands out, and I open it right away. It's an invitation for my son to go to a birthday party in a few weeks. I pull up the calendar on my iPhone. Looks like you'd be able to go. I'll have to double-check there's no other plans. I put the card down and open the electric bill. I've been blasting the air conditioning so much, I wonder how big the bill is. Yikes! I decide to open the other bills to glance at when they're due. I set the bills down and pick up Business Week and flip through the pages, reading a couple headlines and thinking I'll have to remember to come back and read one of those articles. Finally, I put the magazine down on the island and begin to cook dinner. Later that night, I'll return to the mail, sort through it, throw out all the junk mail. I'll leave the magazine in the kitchen, cluttering my environment, and I'll toss the rest on my desk in the office. In the days ahead, I'll reopen the bills to pay them, and if I remember, I'll reopen the invitation, glance at the calendar again, and send back an RSVP. Well, this type of processing of mail might not seem like a big deal. It's often a sign of how we do everything. We come back to things over and over again. When we process our email... We might respond to each ding by scanning who it's from and what the subject line is. We then decide whether or not to open it. If we open it and read it, we then decide to leave it in our inbox so we can respond to it later, when we'll read it all over again. We might take off our dirty clothes and throw them on the floor in our bedroom. Later, we pick them up and throw them in a pile in the closet. Once a week, or when we can actually close, can't close the door to the closet any longer, we get a laundry basket and put the clothes in it, and then take it to the washing machine. Later, we'll come back and actually start a load of laundry. Touch-it-once mentality. Highly successful people take immediate action on almost every item they encounter. They know that to be efficient, they want to expend the least possible amount of time and mental energy processing things. In short, they practice a touch-it-once mentality. Here's how I now go through snail mail using the touch-it-once principle. I walk out to the mailbox and I grab the mail. As I walk back up my driveway, I pick out all the junk mail. I toss the junk mail into the recycle bin in my garage before I even walk back into the house. I easily pick out the magazines and I put them in my magazines-to-be-read stack on the coffee table. I take the remaining bills. That's all there is left. Nobody sends letters anymore. And I set them on my bills-to-be-paid pile next to my computer. Because I've time-blocked 30 minutes every Friday morning for paying bills, I don't even bother opening those envelopes until that time. I actually think the touch-it-once rule is so important, I recommend you immediately take action on something if it will take five minutes or less to complete. As long as it won't interfere with a pre-scheduled task, you're generally better off taking immediate action than having to come back to it in the future. In their own words, Nihar Sutar. Whenever I have a small task that needs to be completed that takes less than five minutes, I should complete it now rather than putting it off. This ensures that I do not have a long list of tasks that I have to complete later at the end of the day. Nihar Sutar is a straight-A student at Cornell University. Touch it once for email. Most people read each email item as soon as it appears, or they open their inbox, see a bunch of new messages, and immediately click each message to open it and read it. Unless a reply requires only a couple of words, most people close the mail message to deal with later. Then they'll have to open it and read it all over again. The better way is to process every email message immediately. Here's how I actually actioned my email this morning, along with the internal debate that occurred in my mind. 11 a.m. My morning health rituals are complete, my kids are off to school, and I've finished two hours of focused writing time. Time to open my email accounts. Deep breath. First email is a Google alert that I've set up to monitor my own name. It shows that my previously scheduled blog post went live this morning. I hop over to my blog to make sure it's all good, and I notice a typo right in the title of the blog. Damn, I'll have to fix that in a few minutes after I scan the rest of my emails. No! Touch it once, my inner voice reminds me. I quickly open WordPress, fix the typo, and click publish. The next email is from a freelancer giving me his employer identification number. So my accountant can prepare a tax document. I'll have to send that along with a note to my accountant later. No, touch it once. I hit forward, add a few lines, and off it goes to my accountant. Next email's from my lawyer, and an invoice is attached. What? I wasn't expecting a bill for anything. Double-click the PDF. Yep, it's correct. I'd forgotten about his work on my trademark question. Ah, I just finished paying the bills yesterday. I can print the invoice and place it in my bills-to-be-paid pile for processing during my normal weekly bill-paying time block, or touch it once. Do it now. Fortunately, my lawyer takes credit cards. I fill out the credit card information on his website and send it back. It only took three minutes. Next email. I recently joined the Pennsylvania Society and sent them my dues. Somebody needs to know if that's a non-profit or not. How the heck do I know? Who can I pass this on to? Oh, sheesh, let's just deal with it right now. I open a new tab in my browser, go to the webpage, quickly scan their about page. No mention of 501c3 non-profit status. Reply to email. Don't think so. Send. Done. Next email. Someone asking me about my speaking fee and availability. I forward it to my virtual admin. Don't even type anything in it. She'll know what to do. After I either clear out all the emails or come close to the end of my 21-minute time block, I just close my email completely and come back to it again late in the afternoon. Touch it once cadence and calendar it. A very powerful tactic is if you can't take immediate action on an email, just calendar it for future action. Remember, we want to use a calendar, not a to-do list. For example, my sister Debbie just sent me an email. Instead of replying to it, I'd like to call her to have a more detailed live conversation. But I don't add it as a task at the bottom of a to-do list. I don't leave it in my email inbox where it might get buried or never actioned. Instead, I set up a time in my calendar to call sister Debbie. I use Gmail and Google Calendar, so when an email message is open and I want to create a calendar appointment, I just, one, click the More button, the drop-down menu near the top center of the window. Two, choose the Create Event option from the drop-down menu. Three, a new tab opens up displaying a new event form in Google Calendar. It defaults to the current day and time and puts the email subject line as the event title. The body of the email appears in the description field. Adjust the date and time as desired and click Save. Voila. If you're using Microsoft Outlook as your email client, it's even easier. While your email is open, just click the Schedule button, or you can even drag an email onto a calendar date on the right side of the screen. For more information or to find screenshots of how to do this, just Google, How to Create a Calendar Entry from Email. Touch it once to declutter. A messy environment can be mentally taxing, increase the time it takes to find stuff, and eventually demand scheduled time to clean the house. A touch-it-once mentality can go a long way to keeping your environment tidy all the time. I'm teaching my three kids to practice touch-it-once. They used to take their dirty dishes and put them on the counter near the sink. I would eventually have to go to the sink again, pick them up, place them in the dishwasher. Now they know when they're done with their meal to pick up their plate and glass, rinse them in the sink, and put them directly in the dishwasher. Same with their laundry. No more taking their shoes or socks off and throwing them on the side of the couch to be forgotten. They take their shoes off. They immediately take them to their room or put them by the door. When it comes to laundry, I even put two laundry baskets in my walk-in closet. One's for dark colored clothes, cold water. The other's for whites, hot water. Why pick up and sort all the dirty clothes when the sorting can be done when I throw it in the closet? How does this apply if you're an entrepreneur or executive? Would Touch It Once help you to keep on top of your email inbox? Freelancer. Would Touch It Once help to keep your administrative paperwork in order? Student would touch it once help you to power through each subject's assignment. Stay-at-home parent would touch at once help to keep the house clean and all that paperwork your child sends home completed and organized. Secret number 13. If a task can be completed in less than five minutes, do it immediately. How much time will you gain when you aren't returning over and over again to touch the same items? Touch it once, touch it once. Touch it once. Free bonus. To download all of your free bonuses, visit www.masteryourminutes.com. Chapter 14. Change your morning, change your life. Imagine if you could have a solid hour of daily me time that could drive higher levels of happiness, productivity, and creativity throughout the day. It is far too easy for us to wake up, feel the pressure of our never-ending to-do list, and immediately begin to react. React to overnight email messages, react to social media, and react to the first item on our calendar. Even if we had intended on having a healthy breakfast at home or jumping on the treadmill, when we go into reaction mode, it's easy to think, I'll grab coffee on the road and work out tonight. Better get into the office and get some of this stuff done. Highly successful people design an empowering and energizing morning routine, and they stick with it. In their own words, Dan Miller, I wake up fully rested, spend 30 minutes in meditation, and then go to my workout area. While working out physically, I take advantage of the rich audio programs available so that I fill that 45 minutes with physical exertion combined with mental input and expansion. I never check the news or look at my iPhone first thing in the morning. No matter how important it may seem to know the latest news, I carefully protect that first hour of the day, making sure that all input is positive, clean, pure, creative, and inspirational. Many of my most creative ideas have come from this protected time of the day, often when I'm in a full sweat. By 9 a.m., I'm invigorated, motivated, and ready to face anything the day may bring. Dan Miller is the author of the New York Times bestselling 48 Days to the Work You Love, No More Dreaded Mondays, and Wisdom Meets Passion. Craig Ballantyne. Get up 15 minutes earlier than everyone else in your house and get into the office 15 minutes before everyone else. You can solve any problem in your life if you devote 15 minutes of focused thinking to it first thing in the morning, every day. Craig Ballantyne is the creator of Turbulence Training and is the editor of EarlyToRise.com. My Sacred 60 Morning Routine. In the introduction of this book, I shared a story from a time when I was young and dumb, overworked and out of control. And I'd leap from my bed to the shower to my car in under 20 minutes, that was when I sped right past a state trooper without realizing he was there, until he pulled me over. Looking back, I can see that not only was I living dangerously, but that lifestyle was impairing my creativity, ability to think strategically, and overall productivity. Well, no more buttered rolls than flying past cop cars for me. These days, my mornings look something like this. 6 to 6.20 a.m. Get up, feed the cats, turn on the coffee pot. Prep the kids' lunch or breakfast items while drinking coffee. Hug the kids out the door to school. 6.20 to 6.21 a.m., guzzle a protein shake and water. 6.21 to 6.22, a minute of gratitude. 6.22 to 6.27, Concentrated meditation. 6.27 to 6.40, turn on a podcast, do yoga stretches. 6.40 to 6.50, resistance training, one muscle group. 6.50 to 7 a.m., Shower and dress. 7 a.m., begin working on my MIT without interruptions. I consider this to be a very minimal hour of power. During less busy times, I add 30 to 60 minutes of cardio while listening to an audiobook or podcast. It's pretty amazing how different I feel since I've started this practice. I feel better as a parent knowing that I got a touchpoint of love with my kids. I feel full but not sluggish with the protein breakfast, and the water seems to wake me up. My attitude of gratitude increases and extends my happiness. I personally don't notice any benefits from meditation, but I believe the scientific research behind it. And i probably get more from it if my practice were longer than just five minutes. The simple yoga stretches have been a life changer. I'm pushing 50 years old. I immediately feel pains and tightness throughout my body if I forget to stretch. Listening to audiobooks or podcasts while stretching or doing cardio means no matter what else happens later in the day, I feel good knowing I already had some me time for learning or entertainment. The morning routines of Arnold Schwarzenegger, Tony Robbins, and other highly successful people. Obviously, successful people don't all follow the exact same routine, but it's amazing how you can easily identify consistent themes. Most wake up early, 6 a.m. or earlier. They hydrate by drinking a lot of water. They eat a healthy breakfast, although each has a different definition of healthy. For example, fruit and oatmeal, green smoothie, protein, slow carb. They exercise. Many meditate, journal, or read. In a video spot recorded for Tim Ferriss, Arnold Schwarzenegger shared his daily morning routine. My morning routine is very simple. I get up every morning at 5 in the morning, and then I go downstairs to the kitchen, start reading the various different newspapers, and then go on my iPad, do all my emails and stuff like that, go upstairs to the gym and work out 45 minutes to an hour, do cardiovascular training, then after that, have my breakfast. Usually it's oatmeal, bananas, and strawberries, and some blueberries in there. I mix it all up with some coffee, eat that, go take my shower, and then go to work. In his audio program, The Ultimate Edge, Tony Robbins shares his hour of power. He begins each morning with a series of breathing exercises, followed by 10 minutes of contemplating everything he's grateful for and visualization of everything he wants in his life. He then spends 15 to 30 minutes doing some kind of exercise while repeating incantations. In a recent interview with Tim Ferriss, Robin shared that he now practices cryotherapy each morning too, standing in a chamber that drops to around negative 166 degrees Fahrenheit for a couple of minutes. Sean Stevenson is a health and fitness expert, best-selling author, and the host of the podcast The Model Health Show. In an interview for this book, Sean shared his morning routine. Energy is everything. We have a certain amount of willpower allotted to us every day, and we burn through it quickly if our energy is low. I like to do most of my creative work in the morning, so I make sure that I stack the conditions in my life to ensure that my energy is high when I get to my laptop. There are three things that are mandatory for me when I wake up. First, I take what I call an inner bath by drinking about 30 ounces of high-quality water. This helps to jumpstart your metabolism by flushing out metabolic waste products accumulated in your body while you were asleep. Whether you realize this consciously or not, when you wake up, you are dehydrated. This will help you to instantly balance your body out. Second, I do a short session of exercise, 20 minutes or less, like rebounding using a mini trampoline, going for a brisk walk, or doing Tabata, which only takes four minutes. This is not done for the purpose of getting six-pack abs, although it couldn't hurt. It's done for the purpose of releasing endorphins that make you feel good and stress hormones like cortisol and epinephrine that help you to focus. Research shows that secreting these hormones in the morning will actually help you to sleep better at night. Third, I eat a lower-carbohydrate, higher-fat, moderate-protein breakfast. Business Insider ran a series where they asked highly successful people to reveal their morning routines. Gary Vaynerchuk, co-founder and CEO of Vaynerchuk Media, gets up at 6 a.m., does a news and social media scan, and then works out with a trainer for 45 minutes. He calls family members on his drive into the office. Cartoonist Scott Adams practices the same morning routine every day, including weekends and holidays. He wakes up at 5 a.m., but he told Business Insider, if I wake up any time after 3.30 a.m., I call that close enough and pop out of bed with a hum and a bounce. His morning meal is coffee and a protein bar. Entrepreneur and Shark Tank investor Kevin O'Leary wakes up at 5.45 a.m., watches the news while riding an exercise bike for 45 minutes. Focus brand's president, Kat Cole, wakes at 5 a.m., drinks 24 ounces of water while checking social media for about 20 minutes. She does 20 minutes of exercise and eats a high-protein snack. Author and professor Cal Newport rises at 6 a.m., drinks a glass of water, then walks with his dog. While in the park, Newport stops and bangs out 25 pull-ups. Hal Elrod's six-step morning routine. Hal Elrod is a professional speaker, success coach, and author who credits his morning routine with turning his life around and establishing a solid foundation for his success. In fact, he believes so strongly in the power of morning rituals, he even wrote a book about it called The Miracle Morning. In an interview, Elrod told me, the premise of The Miracle Morning is to wake up and start each day with the discipline of dedicating time to personal development so you can become the person you need to be to create the most extraordinary life you can imagine, and do so faster than you may currently believe is possible. While most people focus on doing more to achieve more, The Miracle Morning is about focusing on becoming more, so that you can start less doing to achieve more. Through Elrod's research and own experiences, he developed a system he calls Life Savers, S-A-V-E-R-S. S is for silence quiet, gratitude, meditation, or prayer. A is for affirmations, purpose, goals, priorities. V is for visualization of goals or ideal life. E is for exercise. R is for reading, self-improvement book. S is for scribing or journaling. Elrod makes a compelling case that no matter what level of success you already have, using your first minutes of each morning to invest in yourself will take you to an even higher level. How does this apply if you're an entrepreneur? Would starting your morning with a sacred 60 routine facilitate ideation and keep you grounded through the inevitable challenges of running a startup? Executive? Would starting your morning with a sacred 60 routine give you the physical and mental health to have a successful career over the long haul? Freelancer? Would starting your morning with a sacred 60 routine increase your hourly productivity throughout the day? Student? Would starting your morning with a sacred 60 routine help you to reduce stress during exam weeks? Stay-at-home parent. Would starting your morning with a sacred 60 routine increase your patience and happiness? In their own words, John Lee Dumas. The morning ritual that has become sacred to me is a 35-minute power walk first thing. Getting outside, breathing the fresh air, clearing my mind, resetting my focus, all results in a powerful start to an amazing day. John Lee Dumas is the founder and host of Entrepreneur on Fire, which generates over $250,000 a month in revenue. Dumas offers a free 15-day course on podcasting at freepodcastcourse.com. Jeff Moore. Power mornings. Make everything you do for the first 120 minutes a ritual. Chris Myers. My best productivity tip is to wake up early. An early start to the day provides time for introspection and preparation. I Generally try to get into the office by 6.30 a.m. Chris Myers is the co-founder and CEO of BodeTree and frequent contributor to the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Entrepreneur Magazine, and MSNBC. Secret number 14, invest the first 60 minutes of each day in rituals that strengthen your mind, body, and spirit. What time will you set your alarm clock for tomorrow morning so you'll have time for your morning ritual? Free bonus! To download your Change Your Morning, Change Your Life worksheet and other free bonuses, visit www.masteryourminutes.com. Chapter 15. It's about energy, not time. Would you like the real secret to completing 12 hours of work in just an 8-hour day? You can't get more time, only more energy. What if the ultimate time management secret isn't about time at all? You can't manage time. No matter what you do, you will have the same 24 hours tomorrow that you had today. When people talk about time management, what they really want is to get more stuff done with less stress. And the real secret behind this is that you need to maximize your energy. I saved this secret for the end because I didn't think you'd even read it or care about it if I put it up front. But it's the most important secret of all. Red Ball Nation. Have you ever been reading a book? but you keep reading the same paragraph over and over and still not sinking in? Have you ever been working on an important report and you keep zoning off into space, wasting how many minutes doing nothing? Do you get sleepy an hour or two after lunch? How productive are you then? Have you ever actually fallen asleep at your desk? How about right in the middle of a meeting? Have you ever been in a brainstorming session, but you just couldn't come up with any good ideas? If you said yes to most of those questions, you can personally understand that our physical and mental energy varies, and that it has a direct effect on our productivity. In their own words, Will Dean, don't sacrifice your sleep. Sooner or later, it'll catch up with you. You won't perform at your best, and you'll get sick. Will Dean, an Olympic rower for Canada, competed in the London 2012 Games. He's currently training for Rio 2016. Did you know that consumers buy over 4 billion cans of Red Bull each year? The company behind 5-Hour Energy Power Shots reportedly makes more than $600 in revenue annually. People everywhere are fatigued and looking for a quick fix. But while an energy drink might bring short-term alertness, it's no way to handle the chronic brain fatigue so many of us have come to view as normal. How Monica Leonelli 6X'd her productivity. I am a writer. I write slowly. This is a problem, because I am a writer. About a year ago, I tracked my productivity, and I learned that I write, on average, 500 words per hour. Most professional writers produce at least twice that amount. So in order to make better progress on my next book, this book actually, my natural inclination was to time manage my writing. I could make a list of all the things I needed to write. I could prioritize them. I could make sure I was spending time writing this book each day. I minimized distractions, and I said no more often. I tried to find more hours in each day, each week, and each month. I even outsourced some research, like the time management quotes you'll find at the end of this book. And all of that helped to a degree. Then I noticed that writing came easily around 8 in the morning. Kids off to school, I'm feeling fresh, and my coffee's kicking in. I checked, and my average words per hour in the morning was about 750 to a 1,000. Then I checked my productivity in the afternoon getting a little tired and already thinking about the nightly activities, I discovered that my word count was about 250 per hour. Yes, my overall average was 500 words, but the same chunk of time, 60 minutes, produced dramatically different results based on how I felt in the moment. In their own words, Johnny B. Truant. I have to know when I'm at my best for my most important work, morning for writing fiction, when I tend to slack off after meetings or podcasts, and when I can get by with relatively mindless work, afternoons. It's not about getting maximal amounts done, it's about ideally matching my capacities versus my occasional need to screw around with what needs to be done at what time. Johnny B. Truen is a co-host of the top-rated self-publishing podcast, co-author of Write, Publish, Repeat, the No Luck Required Guide to Self-Publishing Success, and the author of well over two and a half million words of popular fiction. In Write Better, Faster, Author Monica Leonelli shares how she went from being a 600-word-per-hour writer to a 3,500-word-per-hour writer. She learned that when she repeated cycles of 25-minute writing sprints followed by a five-minute break, she achieved a 50% improvement in productivity. With these short recharging breaks, Leonelli was able to maintain a near state of flow for longer periods of time throughout the day. Her ailing wrists and fingers caused her to rethink her tools. She switched from keyboard typing to dictation and gained an additional 33% in word count. Once freed from the keyboard, Leonelli gained a final 25% improvement when she began to dictate her novels while walking outside. Leonelli didn't have more hours to give, so she figured out how to increase her energy instead. And her productivity gains were the same as as if she had found six times more hours. In their own words, Katie Ulander, it is important to schedule time for yourself to rest or to refocus. Katie's an Olympic skeleton racer for the United States and competed in the Olympics in 2006, 10, and 14. Abel James. Get your blood pumping for at least a minute or two every day. Quick workouts give a huge boost to energy and feed the brain with the oxygen you need to take over the world. Abel James is a best-selling author, musician, and host of the number one rated health podcast, Fat-Burning Man. Mark Sisson. Don't sacrifice sleep for productivity. Many young entrepreneurs believe they can function on little sleep while they build their business. But lack of sleep and, more importantly, lack of brain rewiring from adequate rest can cause you to lose your edge and sharpness. Mark Sisson is the author of the best-selling book, The Primal Blueprint, and owner of Primal Nutrition, Inc. The most productive people take more breaks. Tony Schwartz, founder of The Energy Project teaches that human beings are designed to pulse between expending energy and renewing energy. His research shows that humans naturally move from full focus and energy to physiological fatigue every 90 minutes. Our body sends us signals to rest and renew, but we override them with coffee, energy drinks, and sugar, or just by tapping our own reserves until they're fully depleted. Schwartz suggests that we need to purposely take short breaks every 90 minutes throughout the day to drink water, walk, or to eat healthy snacks. His mantra is pulse and pause. The idea of pulsing energy is behind the increasingly popular Pomodoro technique, developed by Francesco Cirillo and used by Leonelli, as mentioned earlier in this chapter. With the Pomodoro method, you set a timer for 25 minutes, work on a single task with your full focus, then take a five-minute break to get up, move around, maybe drink some water, then repeat the cycle. The Drowgame group installed software that tracked the time and productivity of all their employees. They discovered that their top 10% most productive employees didn't actually work any more hours than anybody else. In fact, they took more breaks. On average, this high productivity group worked for 52 minutes and then took a 17-minute long break. In the examples above, we see recommendations to sprint for 25 minutes, 52 minutes, or 90 minutes, all followed by breaks. The important point isn't the exact length of the sprint or the break. It's to figure out what pulse and pause cycle works best for you. Our cognitive capacity declines throughout the day. You must build in frequent mental breaks to recharge and maintain your productivity. In their own words, John Ramos. Work in short bursts of productive work instead of long, unproductive sessions, in which 80% of the time is spent on Facebook. Strategies like the Pomodoro Technique reduce distractions, and increase productivity. John Ramos is a straight-A student at the University of Coimbra in Portugal and is a writer at thestudentpower.com. Ian Cleary, set a timer for everything you do. When you have a deadline, you're more productive. I use the Pomodoro technique. Ian Cleary is founder of Razor Social, an award-winning marketing technology blog. Christy Mims, I believe that I can get any task completed, even hated ones, in 25 minutes. Open tomato-timer.com, it's a free website, hit start on a tomato, and then dive into whatever task I find myself procrastinating on. Christy Mims is the founder of the Forbes Top 100 website for careers, the Revolutionary Club. Energy starts with health. The biggest way to increase your overall energy levels is, of course, to take care of your health. You already know this, but keys to productivity include getting enough sleep, minimizing alcohol, Minimizing caffeine, especially late in the day. Eating more whole foods and fewer processed foods. Maintaining a healthy weight. Drinking a lot of water. Exercising daily. A 20-minute power walk counts. In their own words, Mohammed Duji. For me, it's a daily workout during my lunch hour that keeps me sane. On most days, by 1 p.m., I've already put in about 7 hours of work. At that time, it's a no-brainer that I need to recharge and refresh so that I can handle the second half of my day with the same focus and energy as I did the first half. Mohamed Duji is the CEO of Tanzania-based metal group. Forbes has named Duji the youngest billionaire in Africa. J.T. O'Donnell, make intense exercise a daily habit. The more fit I feel, the clearer my head is, the better decisions I make and the more success I seem to attract. J.T. O'Donnell is the CEO of Career HMO and Career Realism. Her work has been cited in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, New York Times, the Boston Globe, and others. How does this apply if you're an entrepreneur? Could increasing energy and alertness, enabling you to achieve more in the same amount of time, help you to get more balance in your life? Executive, would increasing energy and alertness, enabling you to do more in the same amount of time, Help you to get home for dinner with your family. Freelancer. Would increasing energy and alertness help you to be more productive during sleepy afternoons? Student. Would increasing energy and alertness reduce the number of your all-night cramming sessions? Stay at home parent. Would increasing energy and alertness give you more patience with family members? Secret number 15. Productivity is about energy and focus, not time. How will you increase your energy tomorrow? Free bonus. Remember, to download all of your free bonuses, visit www.masteryourminutes.com. Chapter 16. The E3C System. Putting it all together. How can you condense the 15 secrets of time and productivity into an easy-to-implement system? In their own words, Corbett Barr. I stay productive by developing and maintaining what I call a personal operating system, which is a set of processes, tools, and checkpoints that define how I get work done every day. The specifics of an operating system differ from person to person, but the important thing is, is that you have to have one. Corbett Barr is the co-founder and CEO of Fizzle, a community and training platform for entrepreneurs. Remember, there's no one system that universally works for everyone. You don't need to incorporate all 15 secrets to see improvements in productivity. The most important thing is to learn from the habits shared by highly successful people and adopt them in a way that works for you and your situation. In order to help you to take immediate action, I've simplified the findings from all the research into a simple system that I call E3C. The E stands for energy, and the three C's are capture, calendar, and concentrate. Energy. The first step, the most important part of my E3C system, is E for energy. You can't make more time, but you can increase your productivity. Increasing your energy and focus is the most important secret to achieving 10x productivity in the same amount of time. Highly successful people get enough sleep. Highly successful people eat, energizing foods, and exercise consistently. Highly successful people maintain morning rituals, like meditating journaling, hydrating, practicing yoga that establish a foundation of energy, clarity, and alertness for the entire day. Highly successful people pulse and pause throughout the day to maintain peak performance. Capture. The first C in my E3C system stands for capture. You must capture everything and anything into a notebook instead of trying to keep things in your head. In a best-case scenario, trying to remember to-dos, to-calls, to-buys leads to a higher cognitive load and unnecessary stress. Worse, it can lead to an incomplete task. Highly successful people keep a notebook with them at all times and write down everything they want to remember. In addition to capturing to-do items, they also record notes from calls and meetings, new ideas, lessons learned, favorite quotes, and other things that might need to be referenced in the future. Think of your notebook as your external brain. The more you put into it, the less filled your biological brain will be. I believe paper-based notebooks like Moleskine or similar designs work best. You can always scan your written notes into Evernote later, or even better, have your admin or virtual assistant do it for you. Additionally, this practice improves your effectiveness as you no longer forget important things to do, you can hold other people accountable, and can learn from your accumulated written experiences. If you're writing things down that you need to do, Remember, as quickly as possible, you'll want to schedule it as an appointment on your calendar. The second C in my E3C system stands for calendar. What is implied with this step is don't use a to-do list. If you want to do something, immediately schedule it on your calendar. Highly successful people have clearly identified values which lead to top priorities and their most important task. You must time block MIT time on your calendar. Time for other activities that support your top values, for example, health, relationships, giving back, should also get blocked on your calendar on a recurring basis. Highly successful people theme days on their calendar, too. At work, Monday might be the day for one-on-one meetings or for a weekly team huddle. Wednesday might be themed as no meetings or afternoon office hours. At home, Sundays might be the day for grocery shopping, laundry, and cooking a full week's worth of healthy meals. Highly successful people protect their calendar, knowing and feeling the reality that nothing is more important than time. They say no to anything and everyone who does not align with their priorities and are especially wary of distant elephants. They do something only if they aren't able to drop it, delegate it, or redesign it. They spend time on the 20% of things that contribute 80% of the value, and they drop the rest. Concentrate. The third C in my 3C system stands for Concentrate. Highly successful people proactively work from their calendar. They don't react to stimuli like incoming emails, social media messages, or got-a-minute meetings. Highly successful people don't multitask. They concentrate on one task at a time. Highly successful people concentrate on their MIT and other priorities during times of peak energy, typically in the morning. Highly successful people pulse and pause to maintain concentration and productivity throughout the day. Most take five-minute breaks every 30 to 60 minutes. In their own words, Mike Cannon Brooks, do one thing at once, stop multitasking. Mike Cannon Brooks is the co-founder of Atlassian, an Australian software company. Elizabeth Poblet, the basic principle of time management is as follows, do one thing and one thing only until it is finished, then move on. This means put your phone away so texting, Snapchat, Twitter, and Instagram aren't distracting you while doing your homework. Elizabeth Poblet is a straight A student who attends Xavier College Preparatory. Mitch Joel. Your mobile device? Turn off all notifications. Only look when you have time or when you've scheduled time to deal with it. Granted, I have a unique tone for my wife, but that's about it. Don't let technology control you. You control your technology. Mitch Joel is president of Miriam a global digital marketing agency. He's the author of Six Pixels of Separation and Control-Alt-Delete. The time is always now. I don't collect art, but when I accidentally stumbled on a mixed media painting by artist Peter Tunney, I had to buy it at any cost. It's simple message. The time is always now. Be mindful. Live with intention. Remember, there are only 1,440 minutes in a day. Want more training on the E3C system? There is free online training. I personally recorded a series of video training modules that you can access free as a reader of this book. Just visit www.masteryourminutes.com. Chapter 17. 20 More Time and Productivity Hacks The 15 secrets shared before are the principles that are most likely to get you massive gains in productivity. Below are even more tips and tricks you can use to save time. One, always cook more than one meal at a time. There's a lot of inefficient time in cooking, the planning, shopping, prep work, cooking, cleaning. If I cook dinner, which is often, since I enjoy cooking, I'll make sure I get two or three different meals out of it. I personally don't mind eating the same healthy dinner three nights in a row. I mainly eat for health during the week, not pleasure. Two, offload your memory with your camera phone. I have a horrible memory, but I've learned to offload short-term memory items to my phone. Some of the things I take pictures of, my hotel room number, where I parked my car, the label from a good bottle of wine, a book cover that a friend shows me, a whiteboard filled with great notes, or the valet parking ticket. It's an easy way to relieve stress and save a few minutes of wandering around looking for your room or car. Three, mute your phone and shut off all notifications. Working distraction-free has already been a theme throughout this book but it's absolutely crazy to let your computer, phone, or other devices shout at you with notifications. My phone is on silent at all times unless my kids are out at night and I want to make sure I can respond in an emergency. There's no need to be notified every time someone DMs you on Twitter, PMs you on Facebook, or emails you. Four, drink a healthy protein shake for breakfast. Right now, you're probably skipping breakfast to save time or you're stopping at a Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts to grab coffee and a donut. Both are bad ideas. Remember, it's about productivity, not time. And drinking a protein shake gives you energy and alertness all morning, boosting your metabolism so you'll actually burn more calories than if you skip breakfast. And as fast as your dash into a donut shop is, making a shake is faster than parking, walking in, waiting in line, waiting for your coffee, and walking back out. Five, never watch live TV. Why? Because of commercials. Just DVR every show you want to watch so you can skip through the commercials. Unless it's a real-time sporting event or The bachelor's giving away his final rose, do you really need to watch a TV show the moment it's broadcast? Six, don't watch TV at all. David Mearman Scott is a marketing and sales strategist, keynote speaker, best-selling author of 10 books, including The New Rules of Marketing and PR and Newsjacking. In an interview for this book, he told me, According to Nielsen, the average American spends 158 hours each month watching television. That's 1,896 hours per year. Damn, that would be enough time to write an awesome book or start a company. You want a six-pack? Exercise instead of watch TV. Eliminate television and you gain nearly 2,000 hours a year. Imagine what you could do. Seven, use your drive time wisely. Think about how many hours a year you spend driving in the car. Commute times, driving to clients, long trips to your parents' house. Even if you just drive 30 minutes each way to work, that's over 200 hours a year, 10 days a time. We often just think of this as dead time. We crank up our favorite music and tune out. Instead, think of phone calls you need to make, whether work-related or to friends and family members. Make sure you use a headset. Consider listening to podcasts, which can also cover the daily news, or how-to programs, or even learning a foreign language. Of course, you can use podcast apps like Stitcher, to easily find great programs, and to listen to them at two times the speed to save even more time. Eight, never call people without setting an appointment ahead of time. How often do you call unannounced and get someone's voicemail? Hey, Jane, just wanted to catch up, hear how the salesman went, call me back. And then Jane calls you, and you're busy, so she gets your voicemail. Hey, it's Jane, just return your call, call me back. And on and on and on, like voicemail ping pong game. Instead, send a calendar invite or meal that just says, Jane. Let's connect on the phone so I can get debriefed on sales meetings. Is tomorrow at 11 a good idea? If not, suggest a few openings on your day. Notice a few so you don't end up with email ping pong trying to find time on each other's calendars. Nine, avoid busy times out in the real world, if at all possible. This secret will save many minutes a week and many hours in the year. It's as simple as shifting when you do things. Instead of shopping for groceries on busy Saturday mornings, do it late Friday night, early Sunday instead. Don't schedule trips to clients close to rush hour. Don't go into a bank during lunchtime. Use dual monitors, number 10. Adding a second monitor to your computer setup is one of the easiest ways to gain massive efficiency for your computer tasks. It completely eliminates the need to toggle between two different windows. I actually work with one monitor on one computer and two monitors on another, so technically I have three monitors going at the same time. Have a stop-doing list. The great business thinker Jim Collins has often said that your stop-doing list is just as important, if not more important, than your to-do list. In his 2003 article, he talks about how great companies practice this, and he himself uses New Year's resolution time to work on his stop-doing list. Simplicity and minimalism can free the mind, free your schedule, and enable you to do great work. 12. Remind people of the end time. There was a time when I reported to the CEO of a large company and had assumed major new responsibilities. I quickly started drowning. My CEO's assistant offered to follow me around to help. At the end of two weeks, she said, one thing that you need to do is really commit to the end time. Don't let people keep you longer than they were scheduled for. Great advice. Ever since, I start almost every meeting, and especially every phone call with, hey, before we get started, I see we're scheduled for 30 minutes, and I do have a hard stop at 3 o'clock. This way, everyone knows in advance that it won't be a casual, leisurely meeting that just runs its own course. This tip is especially critical if you schedule calls for only 10 or 15 minutes. Hang out with productive people. Seems silly, but so powerful. If your best friends at work are the ones taking 90-minute lunches all the time, you're likely to do the same. If your social circle routinely does happy hour and discusses what happened on reality TV, you're likely to continue doing the same. Consider upgrading your work friends and your other friends. If for some reason you can't find productive time ninjas around you, hang out with them online. Tell people around you to leave you alone. As the Wall Street Journal reported in their September 11, 2013 edition, the biggest distraction to work isn't email or instant messenger. It's face-to-face interruptions. If you work from home, make it clear to your family that your work is work and they can't interrupt you. If you're in the office, consider hanging a do not disturb or back at, you know, one o'clock sign on your door or running yellow caution tape across your cube entrance. And if you're the boss, consider setting aside a couple hours each day throughout the office just for quiet time. Buy birthday cards by the dozen. Do you go out and buy a card every time a friend or family member's birthday comes up? Or do you rush out to buy a condolence card each time you need one? The next time, just go out and buy 10 to 20 cards, a year's worth. Enroll stamps. Keep them in your desk drawer so they're ready to go. Think of how many 15-minute trips to the store you'll save in a given year. 16. Pay bills electronically. Do you pay bills every week or two the old-fashioned way with checks and stamps? Big-time waster. Just sign up for automatic bill pay using a credit card whenever possible so you can earn points. You do need to leave a little extra money in your checking account to make sure you never run short, but it's worth the slight cash inefficiency to save all that time. 17. Never answer a call from an unknown number. If they're not in your contact list. It's highly unlikely the call is from a friend, family member, or a big client. The odds are high it's a sales call or a friend of a friend who's given your number. Even if the call is from someone you know, it's best to have call times scheduled on your calendar. Eighteen, get a business coach, mentor, or mastermind group. This may sound unusual as time management advice, but connecting with someone who's already walked the path you're on can save you a lot of time. Not to mention money and frustration. 19. Release your content through multiple channels. Joe Palizzi, author of Epic Content Marketing, offers this advice. Plan your content creation in advance. Most people think in content tactics like publishing a blog or publishing a Facebook post. It's best to think in stories and how many ways you can tell that story. An article, a blog, a book, a webinar, multiple social media posts, an ebook a podcast, and more. The time savings are immense if only you plan in advance. Number 20, know that done is better than perfect. Software developers will often say shipped is better than perfect, and the release of software version 1.0 is quickly followed by version 1.1, 1.2, and on and on to fix the bugs inevitably contained in the initial release. As a writer, it's too easy to keep working on my book. New material, new ideas, better ways of phrasing things. But published imperfectly is of more value to the world than never published at all. In their own words, Grant Cardone, I don't add time to activities. Hell, I wear a different watch each day and I don't even take the time to set them. I get as much done as I can as quickly as I can, waste no time on the little things, and if I mess up, I'll go back and clean it up. Grant Cardone is a New York Times best-selling author, sales expert, and founder of four companies. This has been 15 Secrets Successful People Know About Time Management, written by Kevin Cruz, narrated by Kevin Cruz, copyright 2015 by The Cruz Group, production copyright 2015 by Kevin Cruz. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.